0: morning, noon, or night, whenever and wherever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host, my name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on June 22nd, 2022. Today on the program, I'm joined by astrologer and host of the White Lotus of Light podcast, Ian Ferguson. Ian has recently focused his podcast on the concept of the European Black nobility and the dark spiritual lineage from which many modern cultural control systems evolved, I invited Ian onto the show to extrapolate on this critical historical phenomenon, as it ultimately exposes a lineage of empire builders, potentially going back millennia, who have profited immensely from the gradual spread of an imperialistic mythology now encompassing the entire planet. According to the theory, ancient worshippers of the Babylonian god Moloch, also known as the god Baal, began cultivating a political and economic system founded on the extraction of resources from the many, through war profiteering and usury, then centralizing those resources into the hands of an elite few who were able to amass wealth and power far beyond that of the ordinary individual. These families eventually migrated from the Middle East into the Mediterranean, where they ultimately ingratiated themselves within the Roman Empire. With the fall of the Roman state, they then evolved into the Venetian nobility, which had a huge influence over the Catholic Church, and ultimately became members of the most prominent noble families throughout feudal Europe. Purportedly, this lineage continues to this day, as evidenced by Eyes Wide Shut type ritualistic parties organized by the likes of Jeffrey Epstein, and in the Cremation of Care ritual performed annually at the Bohemian Grove, where select members of the upper class engage in a ceremonial sacrifice emulating the ancient rituals designed to curry favor with Moloch himself. While this theory may sound far-fetched to many, it does explain the historical transition from a state predominantly defined by peaceful tribal coexistence into the worldwide network of nation-states united through participation in a central banking cartel, yet plagued by a seemingly unending state of perennial warfare. This system defines modern-day reality for all those impacted by European colonization in the present day. This conversation will make an argument that modern imperialism may well be the result of generations of a powerful and wealthy elite, infused with knowledge of ancient esoteric wisdom, creating a cohesive and comprehensive lineage that teaches the secrets of near-unlimited power. Find out more about the work of Ian Ferguson or sign up for a reading of your astrological chart by going to www.whitelotusoflight.com. If you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast on your favorite social media platform. We rely on listeners like you for the distribution of this alternative information. Find out more about The Shift and all other programs produced by Doug McKinty Productions by going to www.theshiftnow.com. Sign up at www.thepopulouspapers.substack.com for an overview of my written work and updates every time a new podcast episode is released. Without further ado, I'd like to thank astrologer Ian Ferguson for agreeing to this interview and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hey everybody and welcome to this 124th episode of The Shift. I'm happy today to be joined by podcaster and uh, astrologer Ian Ferguson. Uh, I got turned on to Ian. I saw one of his videos posted on my Facebook page, I think, just uh, maybe about six weeks ago now. And he was having a conversation um, with a Philip Jimenez about the black nobility. And this is a a, a concept that I have um, played around with. I don't know a lot about it myself, but it's an important part of European history and really probably the European present that uh, I think more people should know about. So the goal of the show today, I think, is to show a a longer lineage of upper-class elites that have had uh, really uh, an inordinate amount of control over uh, humanity and humanity's progress here, really probably going back for 3,000 years. And and, uh, maybe Ian and I will will go take it all the way back there. Um, But I just wanted to focus on this particular point of European history, just to kind of show that this lineage really does exist i mean so many of us get caught up in the left-right paradigm and we tend to think that the these empires have come and gone uh but there's just so much evidence that particular families have maintained throughout these thousands of years from the middle east uh into the mediterranean and the roman empire into the roman catholic church uh and then uh through to feudalist europe and even now A lot of these royal bloodlines really are in control uh, of a lot of the uh, behind the scenes and a lot of the big corporate and government enterprises that are happening today. So I wanted to have Ian on to give us this alternative perspective, this alternative way of thinking about history. So many of us have been taught to think in terms of the left right paradigm and these dialectics, um, which is to say that. They're, they're just a natural process of evolution from feudalism to capitalism to socialism or communism. Um, But in reality, I think maybe there's been this hand, uh, this hand of this, uh, these noble bloodlines, the black nobility um, that creates a lineage that goes way back. That's really been behind the scenes doing a lot uh, of social manipulation. And so I want to thank Ian for coming on the show. Uh, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation cause I have a lot to learn about this particular subject myself. Do you uh, just want to give people a bit of an introduction about yourself and, and, uh, what you're doing? Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate
1: you having me on the show. Um, so, uh, we, we were talking a bit, Uh, beforehand, maybe we'll get back into it later, um, about how we kind of come from totally different backgrounds politically that I was, uh, I guess, foolish in my youth. And I kind of came from more of a, you know, pretty far left background. I mean, I was more always against structure and things like um, communism and that sort of thing. Although actually, I, you know, did read a lot of Marx and found a lot of like what Marx said to be really interesting, just Mm -hmm. the Critique of capitalism. Uh, in retrospect, I realized that Marx was probably like many historical figures uh, funded uh, by these same people we're going to talk about today, because what sprang out of Marx communism and this dialectic, as you uh, were talking about, uh, was, you know, profoundly influential on in the 20th century. Uh, you know, that's not breaking to earth. That's pretty well known. Um, But at the time, I was, you know, pretty far left, you know, anarcho-syndicalist or whatever. Um, Over the past, um, you know, decades, I've sort of learned a lot more about history in particular and just uh, social engineering in general. And so um, I sort of came from that background from a political point of view. But I also had in uh, 2001 and actually January... Um, and might lose some of your more grounded, uh, materialist scientific, uh, listeners (laughs) here, but I will just explain what happened for me and people can take it with a grain of salt. I had a spiritual awakening because I took a, uh, religions of, uh, India class and I read the Bhagavad Gita and I had a bit of a spiritual awakening, uh, around that. And then at the end of that semester, um, I, uh, you know, I was in Eugene, Oregon at the time and, uh, college kid. So I was staying up really late and studying and not really eating and taking care of my body. And then as soon as I was done with finals, the first thing I wanted to do (laughs) was to smoke some weed. And so I smoked a ton of weed and I had this uh, really intense mystical vision, which I've never had anything like that up to that point. I was, you know, pretty much a materialist. Um, And when I was younger, I wasn't that way. But um, that led to this spiritual mystical vision that showed 9-11, 9/11, uh, the 2008 crash, and actually what's happening now uh, with the with the pandemic and the Great Reset. all in symbolic, allegorical form, although the 9/11 thing in particular was really pretty dead on. I saw and I saw like the U.S. from space, and I saw this impact hit basically right where Manhattan was, and this ripple of darkness spread out across oh. the country and uh, nearly completely take over the country, and then there was a A line of light on the west coast that shined up and prevented it and then the the vision kind of went from there and i won't get too bogged down into it but uh when 9-11 then happened eight months later um i on that day had questions as i was telling you before the show i was like talking to my friends and i said you know guys what's the first thing you do in uh warcraft 2 which is this game we played and they agreed you have to set up an air defense because if the guy you're playing against creates an air force basically dragons and griffin riders then they'll just destroy you if you don't have an air defense and i i used that i said what do you use the first thing you do and they said build arrow towers for air defense duh and i said why and they said because if you don't have air defense you get destroyed and they said well why wasn't the pentagon why didn't they have like pop up surface terror missile sites we've had that technology for like 40 years like and they said oh no that would mean the government blah 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 and so i couldn't shake it and so that spiritual awakening and I realized also that day that I'd seen it in that vision that I'd kind of forgotten about because it had been like eight months earlier, um, led to a real disheartening about the political situation because I then went down all kinds of rabbit holes and started learning lots and lots of stuff about history. And that made me very depressed, you know, um, sure, especially sure. everybody thought I was nuts back then, you know, to say on 9-11 or in the weeks to follow that 9-11 was an inside job, uh, let me tell you folks, if you weren't, uh, saying that back then, you have no idea the way people would treat you. They basically thought I was all nuts. It was very isolating, but I couldn't shake it. I knew it was true. And so that then the pressure from that led me on a spiritual journey. And I actually got initiated by a, a legitimate Siberian shaman. Um, I really got really into Western astrology. Eventually I met my, uh, son's mother, my first wife. And she had gone to the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi School of the Age of Enlightenment. That's the, right. the Beetle, Beatles guru for people. Who yeah, know.
0: you know, I am actually. I meant to tell you this. I live in Fairfield now. My wife went to the. You're to kidding. The, yeah. <laughs> yep. And so he lives
1: right where the uh, <laughs> he lives right where the epicenter of this is Fairfield, Iowa. And he bought a, a school there. Well, my wife grew up there. Max' wife grew up there. And so she learned all about the Vedas and Ayurvedic medicine and all this kind of stuff. And she also learned a little bit about Jodish or Vedic astrology. And so mm. I was really into astrology. And my wife told me about this and I was like, oh, I don't like it. I don't want to be a, 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 a Pisces with Virgo rising. Boo, I'm an Aries with Libra rising. And they they have sidereal reckoning. So some of the signs shift like about 40, 40, 40% of people are in a different sign in the Jodish right. system. But the more I learned about it the more uh, intrigued I was by it. And uh, that's actually what I do professionally now as I'm a Vedic astrologer. And what I found interesting about it is rather than focusing on personality and spiritual development the way the Western system does, they focus much more on material events happening in your life. Like, will you be famous? Will you be wealthy? Um, You know, how many children will you have? Uh, All this kind of stuff. And like, I could see things like a car accident that almost killed me when I was 19 in my chart once I learned how to analyze it. And I was like, whoa, you know, and around that time, I I found uh, that JP Morgan of JP Morgan Chase fame famously said back in the early 1900s, millionaires don't use astrology. Billionaires do. (laughs) Right. And right. that's when I, um, you know, o- over this process, one of the things I discovered is that the people who run the world, whether you believe it or not, about uh, magic or sorcery or astrology, it doesn't matter because they do. The people right. who yeah. rule the world absolutely do. And you can see this most prominently. The most easiest example that's very famous to point to is the Bohemian Grove ritual. And uh, you know, for I don't know people who know this, but you know, elites, uh, American elites, all go there, and you know, things like Dick Cheney was chosen as uh, W's running mate at Bohemian Grove. Um, I mean, uh, things like Nixon asked Reagan not to run against someone. I want to say it must have been maybe it was Kissinger asked him not to run against Nixon. I can't remember, but a lot of movers and shakers there get decisions get made behind the scenes there that are very powerful and and there's a very occult focus of something called the cremation of care ritual that they do in front of a giant owl statue and the owl is the female aspect of the deity moloch which we can, can talk about that more later if you wish yeah but i discovered that there was a very esoteric and occulted uh angle to the people who were running the world and whether or not you listener uh, or viewer um, agree with that there's anything beyond like scientific materialism, the people run the world, believe it, and they act upon it, and they do things on certain dates for certain reasons. And you, that's provable. You can see that if you actually look into it. Whether or not there's any substance to uh, the spiritual realms impacting the material world, well, that's up for your personal opinion. But whether or not the elites believe that to me is beyond dispute and they act on it and they are very careful to honor certain days, uh, certain astrological alignments. They're really into numerology, which I don't know that well, but they're definitely into that. And so, um, yeah, that's uh, my background is one of where I. You know, I went to the University of Oregon. I got a degree in world systems theory, sociology, which is the interac- interaction between economics, the environment, and society. And so I studied globalization in particular quite a lot. And learning about that, I learned more and more about economics and kind of taught myself a lot about economics starting in 2007, which then the crash happened, which <laughs> made me even more interested in economics. And by studying economics and history, I started to find that I couldn't. Uh, help but stumble over this esoteric or occult aspect to things.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so, um, yeah, I kind of, uh, I, I weave it all together in sort of my worldview. And uh, that said, most of what we'll be talking about today is going to be, I mean, we can talk about that angle, but we're going to be talking about the historical threads that are, are yeah. to me, uh, once you get there, it, it, it seems like, I, I really believe this is the correct analysis of, the primary drivers of what of events that happen on Earth, I believe are the Venetian black nobility. I, I really believe that, and that's after 20 plus years of looking intensely and going down a million billion rabbit holes and reading tons of history and economics, um, you know I'm, I'm not an expert in either of those things. Those are broad and vast disciplines. Uh, but you know I, I would say I know more than the average bear on these <laughs> subjects.
0: We, do you consider yourself more like a libertarian now? And how did that transition happen? And, and the reason why I talk about this, because we this left right paradigm has a lot to do with the way that we think about history. And so uh, when we get to talking more deeply about the the black nobility and this longer uh, lineage, basically what I would call a, a long lineage of, a, of a, an economic protection racket that's been going on for, for yes. quite a long time and maintained by a, essentially an organized crime family. Um, but so many of us are caught up in this left, right paradigm. So how was your transition out of that? And then, and then uh, where would you put yourself? How do you think of yourself politically now? Gosh, that's a
1: incredible <laughs> question because I have a really hard time categorizing myself. I will say that to me, my, my single fundamental political philosophical principle at this point is liberty yeah the ability of people to be free and to act according to their own will um, as long as it doesn't uh, impinge upon the will of others uh, you know um, right I, I just think that it's so incredibly important and honestly you know I found myself going back to some of the writings and Uh, speeches of the founding fathers and just being like wow i really really did not uh value this stuff highly enough that's not to say that they're not um complicated figures they certainly certainly are um you know uh slavery you know like some of the you know jefferson being a misogynist things like this you know not like having old school values but being an outright misogynist you know um you know we can get caught up in the whole historical reverse relativism meaning that we're trying to judge these figures from a 21st century point of view which is ludicrous because of so much has changed in the intervening 246 years you know since the founding of the country but um i just think that we we've really thrown out the baby with the bathwater on uh the founding principles of the country now mind you uh As we were saying before the show, um, I'm kind of anti-federalist as well, I would say. Um, And I think that the Bill of Rights are far more important than the Constitution, especially the original 10. But of course, you know, there's later ones like ending slavery and giving women the right to vote and things like that, that were important changes, um, uh, you know, important amendments. But especially those first 10 are so, so, so important. And I think that um, as we were also talking about before the show, what I think I stand for is liberty and that also um, decentralization and transparency, because I find that no matter how noble someone might be, the greater the concentration of, of power, uh, the, the more likely even a, a, a close to enlightened person is. Uh, the, the more likely they are to make a mistake that's going to impact a huge number of people and cause real tremendous destruction. And it's just unavoidable the bigger you get. that There's no way that you can do it. You can't make a decision for a country of 350, 360 million people and yeah. that it's not going to give a bunch of people a raw deal. It's difficult even to you know mediate a dispute between two people and not give one of the two people a raw deal. But when you're looking at 350 million, 360 million people, You're going to be doing things that harm a tremendous amount of people. And that's assuming, which I do not, that the people making these decisions have our best interests in heart. But even if they did, they would have no choice. And so eventually it's like it just becomes a matter of pragmatism to just take whoever is willing to give you the most favors in exchange for the decisions you make because of the decisions you make are going to harm people anyway. You might as well feather your own nest you know so right as I, I really like what frank herbert said it's not the power corrupts it's that power attracts the corruptible
0: yeah
1: you know and so i think that um decentralization uh transparency and liberty are kind of like what i'd say where does that leave me on the current cluster right. of the uh, economic, or I mean, a political situation we find ourselves in, gosh, I don't know. But I find myself aligning with people who at least will pay lip service to the Bill of Rights over people who are like, we need to destroy that. Yeah, you know, for whatever that's worth.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you in terms of, you know, we should live in a nonviolent society, which means Right. It's a voluntary society based on the consent of ad- consenting adults making agreements amongst themselves. We don't need to use coercion to impose some sort of equality or some sort of utopian vision uh, on everybody else, um, because that requires violence. And it's not it's it's not ethical to be able to do that. So I think that underlying um, ethos of of the principle of liberty. Uh, it's something that I just have never been able to shake. I mean, no matter how you know, sure, you can argue that there needs to be some kind of economic redistribution of wealth, and nobody's, I think, arguing that the system that we have now is anything like, <laughs> you know, a libertarian paradise. I mean, clearly, there's a lot of a uh, uh, a lot of violence that's imposed um, emotionally and physically on us by those who are in power right now. So. Um, but that ethic, that underlying ethic, I just can't shake. And then the notion of decentralizing power, I just feel like if if everyone could agree on this uh, and even have the sort of social organization arguments on a local level after we've worked together to decentralize power, then we'd have a shot. You know, We just have to stop mm-hmm. with these left-right paradigm arguments and we have to create a... I, I've been using the term lately bottom unity to just get everybody. I mean, you know, there's how many, if there's a couple hundred thousand of these guys that sort of at the top of the pyramid, I'd be surprised. I mean, there may be only 10 or 20,000 people and then there's the rest of us, the other 350 million of us, if we all got on the same page, guess what? It's game over for this system that we're about right. to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I hope people can listen to this and really start to question, is it really worth arguing with my, you know, my neighbors and my friends about politics from this left right spectrum? Or should we all just like r- lift that veil, um, get rid of this concept of history that says that we're we're just inevitably going through these phases from feudalism to capitalism to communism, like we're all taught in school, Um And start to realize that maybe there's something else at play here that we can all get on board and do something about. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, let's go ahead and start getting into the part of the conversation where we're explaining the system that's really going on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you talked about maybe we could start with Moloch. I mean, why the hell are those guys at the Bohemian Grove worshiping a 3000 year old God from, from Mesopotamia, from ancient Mesopotamia? And what's the connection? Because to me, this is the lineage that we're talking about, this spiritual lineage that these people who have been in power and the people who have controlled the empires throughout the millennia uh, mm-hmm. have consistently continued to follow these esoteric traditions. Um, so what what are these? What is this all about? What's really going on?
1: Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think you actually have to, in order to understand like who these people are um, they, they have, they, they have managed to hide themselves very successfully, especially in the last a uh, few hundred years. And it seems, uh, as a direct result of, um, basically people catching wise to them mm-hmm. and wanting to put a stop to them. But the, these, these bloodlines that I call the Venetian black nobility, um, and by the way, uh, if you want, If you want to go deeper on it, I would recommend the writings of Dr. Joseph Farrell. I would also um, recommend—he's a very contentious figure—but Lyndon LaRouche Senior. Right. Uh, Actually, the first time I heard about the Venetian Black Nobility was in a leaflet for Lyndon LaRouche Junior. for president, two thousand four, and I went to the website and I actually can't find this article anymore. And he started talking about the toads of Venice. And I started remembering about how I had read when I was much younger because I've, I've always been into history since I was a little boy. Right. Um, about the Venetians and the Venetians being very powerful uh, at the point in time, basically between the fall of the Roman Empire and the arising uh, to power and dominance of the Catholic Church, and really throughout the Dark Ages, what we call the Dark Ages. Um, and so these people were doing international banking kind of before anyone else now the knights templar are actually it seems the first group to create an international structure that included the ability to move money through letters of credit over distances it it, it seems that there is a, a a previous iteration of that that happened in the islamic world and that the knights templar Kind of like took that, but what they did was they made it. Uh, they made it so you could transfer vast amounts of money over vast distances with a letter of credit.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So the Knights Templar come on the scene historically from the point of view of, uh, you know, like open history around approximately a thousand A.D. It, it's actually a little bit before that's when they got the charter, and I actually am a Knights Templar. I will say. Um, And they, they started before, before the era when they were sort of publicly proclaimed, but they started first and got a a writ from the Pope in sometime after 1000 AD. And they basically were supposed to be guardians of the, uh, oh gosh, pilgrims going, people who were doing pilgrimages and going down to Jerusalem to you know, see the birthplace of Jesus and so forth. yeah, and that was what they were supposed to be doing. However, what they appear to have actually been doing was doing uh, a lot of excavations and a lot of actually archaeology. Um, and they they were doing they were doing all kinds of stuff that was off what they were supposed to be doing. And they also were working with these families in Venice. Um, and it seems perhaps at the direction of some of these families in Venice to do some of this excavation. Also, they were doing it, I can say, because it's open public knowledge. They were supposed to be finding, (laughs) they were supposed to be finding, uh, what they called remnants of the primordial tradition. So according to my lineage, uh, we are told that the Zohar, which is one of the main Kabbalistic texts, was excavated from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There's a lot of speculation that other things were excavated there, possibly including the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Certainly some gold or a lot of gold was excavated from there. Um, There's stuff in, I forget the name of it, but there's a copper scroll that's from the same period, a time period of the Dead Sea Scrolls that talks about this. Um, But they brought a lot of money back with them, and they started using these letters of credit in order to allow a pilgrim to travel down to Jerusalem with just a piece of paper, and then they could cash that in with the Knights Templar, and they would get gold. And that allowed merchants to start moving down in there and start doing trade between the, the Muslim world and the Christian world. So why am I talking about the Knights Templar when we're talking about the Venetian Black nobility? It seems that the Venetians took this letter of credit system and they added the element of usury, they added interest. But they started to uh, use that similar method of letters of credit in order to move huge quantities of money around Europe and also the Middle East. And then they added usury. That was the big difference was that they added interest. Mm -hmm. Now, the Venetians were also, at this period of time, they were supplying a huge amount of the warships that were used throughout the Mediterranean. And they had a lot of experience building ships because, I'm going to have to go backwards in time from here, but I wanted to establish that the Venetians are the first international bankers in the way that we conceive of it in modern times with interest. That is absolutely critical, the the adding of usury to the system. And it's what differentiates what the Knights Templar were doing with what the venetian black nobility would do it okay now they made sh- warships and how are they good at it because i'm going to go now backwards in time and i'm sorry i just it's hard to determine where to start this because it's a yeah. <laughs> vast saga now if you go way back in time and for anybody who you know is a biblical scholar or is interested in the bible you can read the section of the bible about king solomon and the building of the first temple in jerusalem which is around um, I'm actually gonna real quick get my my notes out just to get some of these dates accurate here. Um, it was around, I believe, 969 BC. Let me just check real quick here. Uh, doot, 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 Sorry, it's taking me just a second. 957 BCE construction was finished on the Temple of Solomon. Okay. So the reason I bring up Solomon is because. Solomon uh, married, first of all, the building of the Temple of Solomon had these master builders, these uh, people who were like amazing. They knew sacred geometry and they knew how to make incredible uh, temples, basically, temple builders. And the master who made Solomon's temple was a man named um, Hiram Abif, which is a central figure in the original master mason and freemasonry, by the way. There's more than one Hiram mentioned in the Bible, but Hiram Abiff was the one who created the temple. And then according to the apocryphal story of the Masons, he was killed by his three apprentices, one with a compass, one with the gavel, one with the, the, the ruler, right? And that's where you get the main uh, symbols of, of Right, Mason. okay. Right? So this man created this temple. And Solomon also married a woman from Tyre, One of, and, or maybe more than one. But he married a woman from Tyre. And this woman wanted to set up Moloch worship. And she did so on the, she did it on one of the hills on the outside of, outside of the city, basically. And this Moloch worship, which the Molochians, they, the way they worship that God is by basically harming children, both in the Epstein variety, it's demanded by that deity, but also sacrifice, child sacrifice. And they would have this bronze statue, um, That they would do one of two things. They would either heat it up to where the hands were like red hot by like, it was hollow. So they would put a fire inside it. And then they would throw, it's horrible, but they would throw the children into the hands of the, the statue. And then the children would cook and they'd bang on drums so people couldn't hear the screaming of the kids and whatever. But that particular thing, which I won't go into any more detail on it, is critical because this sacrificing of children thing seems to continue with this stream of these wealthy people that we're talking about and human sacrifice in general. And Moloch is mentioned several times in the Bible, and the word Satan actually means adversary. It doesn't mean A a specific deity, whereas Moloch means a very specific deity, also known as Haman Baal. That was what they called it themselves. Moloch is the uh, Hebrew word for this deity, but it's actually Haman Baal, according to the people who worshipped it. And these people lived in this little city of Tyre. And Tyre was built on the coast of Lebanon. And it was they had it both on the mainland, but they had their main city on this little island just off the coast of, uh, Lebanon. And they became fabulously wealthy because a, a bunch of, it seems Babylonians and Akkadian nobility moved there. There's a lot of Akkadian linguistic, uh, connection showing that those people who lived on Tyre were Akkadian, uh, language wise. Um, and so it seems that they went from Akkadia to Babylon and then to Tyre. That's a little, you know, we're now talking, you know, like 2000 something BC. So we're talking like 4000 something years ago. So it's the, the records back then are very scant. Let's sure. put it that way. So we have to look at linguistic clues to kind of give us a sense of who are these people who appear here and build this. They also crushed these little seashells called murex, these little uh, animals called murex, and they would crush them by the thousands. And they got uh, purple dye, what we right. call royal purple. And that is a big part of how they became so wealthy, because the reason it's called Royal Purple is because only nobility could afford it because it was such a laborious process. It took, I want to say, a thousand or ten thousand of these little uh, sea snails and crushing them up to get like a gram of this purple dye. And they also um, they also I think uh, again, this it's not really provable, but it seems that they were doing stuff with money with what's called Babylonian money magic, which is essentially using little pieces of paper and getting people to agree to use a medium of exchange that you then control. right? You you can just say it's a psychological trick if you prefer, if that's your right. background and you're more materialist. It's a psychological trick, but basically it seems they were starting to do proto-banking stuff even way back then. right? Uh, regardless what is beyond dispute is they were fantastically wealthy so they also put out a little um uh what do you call it uh a colony in what would come to be known as carthage right which is like hannibal who fought the romans and so forth yeah so and and again they worship moloch or hammonball or the greeks called this this uh being chronos And Kronos is the Greek name for Saturn.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: And and if you are of a more occult bent or you have an eye for it, you will see this black cube phenomenon again and again and again uh, among the power elite. And Moloch is an aspect of Saturn or Kronos, but it's a very low aspect. There's more aspects to it. There's actually a higher justice and reasonable society. So it's not... I don't like it when people just demonize Saturn and say there's, it's just all evil, but the people who worship this particular aspect of Saturn are very nasty. So Alexander the great, when he starts marching down to the East and taking over his vast empire, he eventually lays siege to tire and more or less destroys it and kind of breaks the back of it. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, which happens first with the fall of Carthage or Alexander the great uh, destroying Tyre. I'm pretty sure Alexander the Great yeah. predated, it because I believe Rome was still a republic at that point in time. Yeah. But uh, with the fall of Tyre, a lot of them moved to Carthage, and then some of them kind of stayed in that area, but it just was never kind of the same after Alexander the Great smashed it. So eventually Carthage falls, Hannibal and the Punic Wars, and these people who worshipped this Cronos, they kind of realized we can't do things the way we've been doing things. And also we want to get in on this action of the Roman, that point, the Roman Republic, but it's moving towards the Roman empire around that time. So these families move up to Rome and a lot of them become senatorial families. One of them becomes the Maximus family. And later, many, many, many years later, which was a senatorial family, they would rebrand themselves as the Orsini family. And the Orsini's are one of the major, major, major players in all of this. So, fast forward a bit now to uh, Rome is falling, and these uh, these families then move to Venice. Now, another name for these people, besides Tyrians or the Venetian black nobility, is they were originally called the Phoenicians. Also, okay, Phoenicia includes Sidon, Tyre, and a bunch of. Lebanon. So, you know, like the phonetic spelling of things, it comes from Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians were master seafarers and they were master boat builders. So when they moved to Venice and take all their ill-gotten loot from Tyre, Carthage, and being Roman senators and getting all this wealth, right? They then move to Venice and they start making warships. And they go from worshiping Saturn openly to now they're Christian just like everybody else, right? Because Constantine happens and the mass conversion to Christianity within the Roman Empire happens. So they uh from Venice they start rolling out warships. And a lot of people say that like Henry Ford invented the assembly line. Well I would argue no the Venetians did because they were cranking out like a complete warship every day because they had basically an assembly line. And so they started to get a lot of wealth from that and they were able to do a lot of exploration. You will notice that Marco Polo and, Clu- and Columbus both have ties to Venice. That is not an accident. Marco Polo was sent to look into the trade routes to the east, and he w- had, he went through what would have been then the Khanate of Cazaria. and Columbus got bankrolled by the Venetians, and this is key, also got maps from the Venetians of the New World, which, where did he get those from? That's very speculative, but there is some evidence that either the Egyptians and or Phoenicians made it to uh, the United States long before Columbus,
0: yeah. along
1: with the Vikings. So um, these Venetian families then started using banking, like I was saying, with the Knights Templar and so forth, um, and they began to bankrupt the sort of proto-european countries over and over and over again often by financing both sides in various wars and adding the element of usury and it was causing big problems throughout europe they also at this point in time started to you know in the early days started to try and seize control of the vatican via getting their guys in there as popes right and so another family one that a lot of people are probably familiar with that would fall under venetian black nobility the medicis right and the borgias mm-hmm. right these old italian wealthy families and they the venetian black nobility is also sometimes called the papal bloodlines because so many of the first like hundred or so popes were almost always from one of these competing families i also want to note here that when i see the venetian black nobility they're not monolithic they do recognize each other as cousins and they will close ranks if they see an outside threat, but they're forever fighting against each other. And a great way to look at it as an offshoot of the black nobility is the Cosa Nostra, the, what we call the Italian mob, right? right. The Italian mob. And you can see there, there's different dons competing for whatever slice of the criminal pie. Well, this high level Venetian black nobility, they operate in the same way, right? But they'll all turn and like, if they're all getting threatened by the FBI they're gonna close ranks and not inform on the other mafia family usually you know they'll usually be like okay well we're all we're all mafia here you know and we all hate the feds
0: you right. know but <laughs> then as soon
1: as the heat goes down they'll try to kill each other again to gain more territory so it's a similar thing but they're even less likely to kill each other than the the mafia level guys they, they generally, they generally jockey for power in different ways through proxy, proxy warfare and getting different capturing parts of, you know, the proto-capitalist or later actual capitalist system. So they use the they use the Vatican in order to um, create all kinds of like protected trade systems. However, at some point, the Vatican decided to, and I can actually tell you the exact date, the Vatican decided that they wanted to pull the power away from these families and pull it into the Vatican proper. And so there was a particular Pope who made it illegal to lend at interest if you were Christian. And that happened in 1179 AD. And they had already banned the clergy from lending an interest in 416 AD, but in 1179 AD, they made it illegal for a Christian to lend at interest. Um, much later in the 1500s, they made it legal again. And, uh, and then kind of like gave that back to these Italian banking families. So people are probably, um, first of all, do you have any, I realized I just went on a super long thing, but I'm trying to give like a framework where we can flesh out more detail. Basically, these wealthy families from the Middle East who worshipped a very nasty god, Moloch, They eventually got beat by Alexander the Great in the Roman Empire and decided to become part of the Roman Empire. Then when Rome fell, they moved to uh, Venice as their primary base of operations. But there's also competing families within Genoa and some of the other uh, in Florence, some of the other major cities uh, there in the north and east of uh, Italy outside of Rome. Sure. Uh, And then they came to dominate the especially early days of the Catholic Church. So. Um, I have, of course, lots more to say, but I feel like I've been talking for a while, and I want yeah, I mean, I just what just, you would like to I,
0: I actually think you're doing a great job of of explaining what's you know the history of all of this. And I just want to reiterate, I think two points, and one is is the lineage of these families that is traceable. and mm-hmm. you can clearly see that they've come from the Middle East into tyre, Carthage uh, and then and then, um, sort of ingratiated themselves amongst the Romans and the Roman nobility. And then you're looking at Roman senatorial families. And then with the quote unquote fall of the Roman empire and the rise of the Catholic, the Roman Catholic church, these same families have moved into to Venice and, and started and continued to do what they had been doing and, and now have this heavy influence over the Catholic church. So, you know, we can clearly see how, um, How there's this lineage of these people that were Moloch worshipers early on Mm -hmm. who have continued to to, uh, amass power and accrue wealth and power uh, through this early uh, banking system um, and through the practice of usury. Uh, And and then also the other point that I that I just want to emphasize is this connection with organized crime, because that's Mm -hmm. that's what I see when when I had the thought in my mind that that governments and the way they operate were more like protection rackets and or an organized crime syndicate. It was like a big aha moment for me that, you know, we're having these. These arguments in this left-right paradigm, and it's just not the right paradigm to even perceive what's really happening here. There's a this group, these wealthy families for thousands of years that have been actively building this empire, and it is exactly that. It's an organized crime syndicate. It's just exactly like the, the mob. It almost even makes sense to me when you hear about you know the cia working with organized crime or these intelligence agencies or some you know the governments that are working with organized crime right. it's like well that didn't make sense to me until it was like oh no it's the rich organized it's the most powerful organized crime syndicate working with these sort of underlings in organized crime you know and right. and just when i started to analyze history from this point of view of this kind of power structure instead of thinking about these great economic movements from, you know, like I said, from feudalism to capitalism or, or just the way that the vast majority of us get taught to being like, no, I mean, let's analyze this from a power structure. And then you can see, you know, these family lineages that have had power for a long, long period of time and are just maintaining this this cartel, this organized crime cartel that, that they've been developing, uh, you, you know, since uh, since literally the beginning of history. Um, it, things start to fall into place when you, when you can observe history from this lens, from this paradigm. So, so continue with the story. Yeah. So it. Uh, the
1: reason, um, the reason I'm setting up this banking thing is because I think, I think that if people are savvy, that, that most people can conclude that if you look at the nexus of everything, in fact, the scientific American, I think it was, did a, uh, was it scientific America? I can't remember. There was some there was some very prestigious, very mainstream scientific magazine. They did an analysis and they uh, found this super entity at the center of capitalism through all sorts of interlocking concerns and interlocking this, that, and the other thing. Right. And basically at the very, very center was banks. And I think most people who have any kind of understanding of economics understand that central banks wield almost unimaginable power, talking about like the Fed in the U S the federal reserve. Yep. What less people know is that the federal reserve answers to another bank, the bank of international settlements in Basel, Switzerland. Right. And when you start looking into the founding of that, some interesting names come up and I can't remember which of the, uh, black nobility families, um, in, in my video I did with, uh, Philip Jimenez, he, he mentioned which one was one of the primary people, but Rothschild was involved in that. Um, Hjalmar Schacht, who was also the banker, both for uh, sort of the Prussian World War One Germany, but also for the Nazis. He was foundational on that. Um, The head of the Bank of England, was it? And they said, oh, well, this is just to to do transfer payments from Germany to France for reparations for World War One and to England. That's it. It ended up being that the the Bank of International Settlements is like the hub or the nexus that all the central banks in the world go there and talk to them, and it's completely opaque. Yeah. And remember when I said earlier, I said centralized...
0: Transparency.
1: <laughs> centralized and opaque is the opposite of what we want. <laughs> yeah. And, and then even that's not the end-all, be-all, because like I say, it, it it really traces back to these, these families.
0: And so when yeah. people... If I oh, can just inter- interject really quickly, Please. because you made such a great point about in, in the modern day, um, the way that I've interpreted it. And one of the things I saw a graph at one point that showed, first of all, the way the cartel is structured is around banks. So there's like the four, let's say the four major banks for are four or five major banks that are too big to fail. And like each one of those banks you'll see has one of the is connected to one of the Four or five major oil companies, and one of the four or five major media companies, and and so they all they're all you know they're all organized around uh, amassing these resources, and then of course the major banks are all connected to a, a, a billionaire family, and this would be say in the United States, or they're all transnational corporations, of course now. So internationally, there are more, but in the United States, you see these sort of five major banks all sort of surrounded by these five different from the different industries. They all control the biggest corporations in the different industries. And then the banks are connected to the central bank, of course, the Federal Reserve, which is where they all collude. Then the Federal Reserve is connected, as you say, to the Bank of International Settlements. And this, to me, is the is the modern day uh, hub of the wheel or the engine that drives colonialism. I mean, this is what I see Absolutely. it as. This is you know, so funny because again, most people think about history as like, oh, you know, back in the 19th century, there was the British empire and then Gandhi came around and you know, it's <laughs> all good now. There's no, we don't do colonialism anymore, right? I right. mean, people think there were these, these revolutions and the British empire fell apart and it's like, well, politically things, you know, some chess pieces got moved around a board a little bit, But in reality, this central banking system, the one that has always harvested the wealth of empire since the very beginning, as you're describing, with the Venetian black nobility. And before that, uh, they've been cultivating and developing this, this banking system as this methodology of harvesting their empire since way back then. And now it's just evolved into uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, a world bank.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And IMF and, 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 uh, Bank of International Settlements, especially. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And so people, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and address sort of the elephant in the room, uh, which is that anyone who's looked into banking to any degree, you know, one of the, I name dropped a minute ago, the Roths, Rothschilds, yeah. uh, they're, is a, what I see happening, especially um, people are searching for answers right now. They want to know what's, why is everything going so wonky? Why is everything so wrong? And when things are uncertain and scary, which this is the most uncertain, scary time, probably in anyone who's alive a lifetime, maybe if you lived in World War II, it was more severe. I am not even certain about that. And that's with no disrespect to World War II veterans or the yeah, gravity yeah. of that time. I'm just saying what's happening now is, if you if you actually understand what's happening now, it's bigger than what happened in World War II. It's just not quite as flashy. It, you know, it, it, it's not huge clashes of armies and so forth. Yeah, it's much more economic and social engineering and and media driven and psychological warfare driven rather than tanks on the ground kind of thing and troopers on the ground. So, if you look into banking at all. You're going to come into this thing where, you know, a lot of people just want to stop there. They don't want to look any further. Mm -hmm. And I assure you, there's beyond. There's a reason that I mentioned that the Pope banned usury for Christians in 1179 AD. Now I'm going to talk about something very contentious. And before I do, I'm just going to say that I have personal sort of skin in the game on this one. And what I mean by that is that my, my uh, ex-wife that I mentioned earlier, uh, who, who got me into Vedic astrology and so forth, her father is Jewish. And that means that my son is genetically Jewish. And were we to, heaven forbid, have lived in Nazi Germany, he would have been considered Jewish and dragged off to the camps as soon as they found that out. Yeah. So I want to say like with, with that lens and understanding What you cannot ignore and what should not be ignored is the fact that much of the face of banking is Jewish and not Sephardic Jews, not Nazarene, not Ethiopian Jews, but specifically Ashkenazi Jews. Now, what I'm about to say is contentious, but it's by and large settled historical fact, according to most scholars who don't have a direct connection with the existence of the state of Israel. And that is that there was a Khanate that straddled the Black and Caspian Seas in actually almost exactly modern day Ukraine, a little bit of Georgia, and some of the other the S- southern Russia Russian tip that's down there. But it straddled the Black and Caspian Seas, and it was a Khanate because it was a Turkic people, and it was called Khazaria or Khazaria, and they were uh, pagan. They worshipped whatever gods they worshipped. Um, and they were were pagan. However, they kept being concerned about encroaching uh, Christians and Muslims. They had Muslims to the south and they had Christians to the west. And more and more, they were seeing how the Christians and the Muslims would convert by the sword any pagan groups they ran across. And they would see pagan lands as right for the taking. So a king of uh, Khazaria in around 600 something A.D. said, he brought a muslim to him and said hey what is the best religion they said islam and they said well, what do you think about christians oh we hate them they're enemies the crusades blah 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 or like we're fighting with them for territory whatever it was at that point in time they were already rivals for territory by that point in time and they said well okay is there any other religion that you have any kind of respect for and they said well there's not many of them left because uh in in the middle east and um In Europe, there were not many Jews left at that time because after the third uprising against the Roman Empire's occupation of Palestine, the Romans smashed and destroyed the royal lines of the Jews, the line of David, and just scattered the Jews to the Nine Winds, killed a tremendous, I mean, some some people call it the first Holocaust. They basically just smashed the Jews who lived in Palestine, almost completely wiped them out, and they had to scatter the few that were left. There was still a big Jewish community in Ethiopia. Uh, I think it's Nazarene is what they're called, who lived in uh, Iran, Iraq area. And then there's Sephardic Jews who were on the um, Iberian Peninsula. So they said, oh, there's not many Jews left, but we like them. They're people of the book was what the Muslim said. And the Christian said, well, you know, like the Jesus was Jewish. So we, we like the Jews. There's not many of them. There's some in the Iberian Peninsula, blah, blah, blah. We don't really see them, but they're fine. So the king of Khazaria is like, well, I got to do something because sooner or later we're going to get crushed by these opposing forces of Islam and Christianity. And so there was a mass conversion, and there is actually a source document from the Iberian Peninsula, no less, that says there was this mass conversion of Khazaria. Now, this document is somewhat contentious, primarily, I know, among Israeli or Jewish scholars, right? The reason being is that if you can't point to you being genetically related to the people of david that kind of undermines that whole right to the land that is known as the modern day state of israel right? right it undermines that argument tremendously so so this is why this is such a contentious subject because it's instantaneously political forget anti-semitism just the state of israel's existent existence is called into question the uh the right to it, I suppose, the right to that land, you know, which is tenuous anyway. I would, I would say, you know, going in there in 1948 and reclaiming all that land, sure. you know, it's you can say whatever you want about that. Maybe you're for it, maybe you're against it. But if you remove that element of you're not actually the bloodline of David, you're a different group that converted to Judaism, that really undermines that. And so, why am I bringing this up? Well, this uh, Khazarian group. It was also right along the Silk Road trade route. And so any trade that was happening between the West and China had to go through Kazaria. And they were always acting as middlemen. They're known for having done some uh, sneaky, nasty stuff. They were sometimes called the name stealers, or they would drug people and then pretend to be them and then close the deal and do all kinds of shenanigans. They were kind of like known as a as people who were particularly feisty and particularly clever. And they had this mass conversion. And then eventually a, uh, Russian basically came down and crushed them and broke that empire. And that happened in, uh, let's see when that happened exactly. So the fall of Khazar is a founded approximately 650 AD. Uh, I can't remember exactly when the mass conversion happened. It happened not too terribly long after that. Um, and then they had the beginning of the fall, uh, in, in basically the year 1000 AD and Khazaria had been pretty weak since 969 AD with the invasion of uh, the Rus by Spiatsoslav, the first of Kiev and by 1224 AD Khazaria was pretty much totally destroyed because a Mongol invasion then came from the east and so they had to flee and they fled to eastern europe northern turkey and elsewhere to the west and south Mm -hmm. and this is around the time when suddenly um lots of there's lots of medieval documents talking about like jewish people being around uh and, and the way it's described again you know records aren't great back then but it makes it sound as though it was kind of something new a lot of this stuff and again this is very contentious because did they, they don't like to acknowledge it because it, it undermines this whole Israel thing. Um, I, I am convinced that it exists, that A, there's no question it existed. But to me, there's no question that at a bare minimum, there was a huge population of Jews within Khazaria that had converted at some point in time. I believe this mass conversion story that comes down to us from uh, some Islamic texts and letters that went back and forth between Kazaria and um uh, one of the uh, Muslims back then, they were in very friendly terms that were um, the caliphate that was there on the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, I, I'm of the belief that what I just said is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. People can, you know, please don't take my word for any of the things I'm saying. Research it yourself. I think you're going to come to probably fairly similar conclusions I did. It matters because when the Pope banned usury for Christians, of course, the black nobility worships Moloch, but they can't say that. They can't openly say that because if you say that now in what's now Christian Europe you're going to be killed right this is around the time that the uh right, inquisition right. is happening right like the, especially the and and the the crusade against the the cathars the albigensian crusade happens around this time and the templars get destroyed uh not too terribly long after this actually so they banned christians uh lending an interest and so that put the venetians in kind of a bind they didn't want to stop their most profitable thing ever that dwarfed the profits of what they got from uh selling selling those war galleons they wanted to keep it going and they had a problem now because they could no longer directly do it and in comes this group of people who their own book says that they can lend at interest if it's to non-jews so the black nobility appears to have then Used Khazarians, or sometimes what are called the court Jews that suddenly appear around this time as moneylenders,
0: but a frontman. Right. Interesting.
1: And a lot of people will get to this layer of the Khazarian mafia, which is a small percentage, a tiny percentage of Ashkenazi Jews, a, t- a vanishingly small percentage of them. The same way that, like, the Bush family or the Clinton family or the Queen of England or take any power elite group. They're tiny, tiny right. minority within that group, and that's critical because people get caught into this anti-Semitic hysteria because, yes, you can it, point to there's banking and there's a media. Did you want to say something?
0: Well, it really is important to note that. And then the other thing I just wanted to bring up at this point is, uh, as we were talking before uh, the interview about the, the Sabbatean Frankist. Yes. Movement. And 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 then you're really talking about it's a Jewish movement, but it it, it was a sect of Judaism. That's that sounds to me more like they're acting more like these these Moloch (laughs) worshippers. Yes, they are. And, And then and then the very wealthy, quote unquote, Jewish families are basically working together with the very wealthy members of these venetian nobility members and they all seem to be acting in a way that they're all basically following this moloch lineage so you know to call these people who are acting in this way this the small group and to equate them with the rest of of judaism and and the average jewish person is just uh i think it's just an insane leap uh and it's important to to understand that while some jewish people have been involved in this the ones that have really gotten to the top of the top of the ladder if you will have have been involved in these in these very strange offshoots these uh, sabatian and frankist offshoots of judaism uh, and then really ultimately at, at the end of the day they all seem to uh, this whole group of People that have been working within this lineage as a part of this organized crime syndicate have been working towards this concept of one world religion and elimination of all these different religions, uh, and to identify them as as Jewish and in, in particular is just not accurate.
1: Absolutely, I agree a thousand percent. And Sabati mm-hmm. and frankis to me are simply occulted uh, Malachians. It's right. the same thing. Th- their belief. Uh, uh, their belief um i for, i forget what his name is like um oh i can't remember the name of the founder of um, of sabatian frankism you could you can look it up um basically they say oh the god of the old testament is actually like that's not real that's like a fake evil god and um our God is beyond that. And the only way you can reach that God is
0: by inverting all of the right. the rules of like the Torah and so forth. And, yeah, and, wanna, and they don't even use the Torah, right? It was like, they ditched the Torah and they're using the other, the Zohar. The Babylonian the Talmud. Other, yeah. The other books. Yeah. So it's well, a very different sect.
1: Right. And, and the thing is, is like there is nasty stuff in the Babylonian Talmud. It, it's also 5,000 years old or whatever. Like, find me some literature from that period of time that isn't pretty nasty like good luck right. <laughs> you know what i mean like and, and and when i look at when i look at for example um the jews who eventually like tried to stamp out and destroy the malachians and there was a big fight between the yahweh s
0: exactly and yeah. the
1: malachians they became stark enemies because they're also called canaanites the phoenicians they're also called canaanites right and They were super hated and were huge rivals. It was a very strange period of time with the Temple of Solomon to where there was like peace between these two. And then it even looks like if you're looking at it, looks like there was an attempt to subvert at that time uh, Judaism and move it even way back then towards this more Malachian impulse. I mean, you have this woman who's married to King Solomon and then she seduces him and gets him to do something that eventually, according to the Bible, gets him you know, in disfavor with God, right? When he had been the most favored person on earth, um, he moves into disfavor because of almost most specifically his wife setting up that worship of Moloch. So getting back to this Khazarian thing, that then brings in these families who would go on to become these banking dynasties that are Jewish. But again, I want to point out interestingly enough this is kind of the reverse of what i'm about to say but when jp morgan died jp morgan of um you know, the bank fame, right. It was discovered and he kind of skyrocketed out of nowhere to becoming this like super powerful figure within the American political and economic class out of nowhere. He was selling shoddy guns during the civil wars, his supposed backstory of how he became so wealthy. And then he was like the second richest man in America after John D. Rockefeller, who would be a trillionaire in modern money or pretty close to it. I don't know, 10, 10, 100 billionaire or something like that because he was a billionaire back in you know 1900 or whatever. So I figure, you know, inflation's about 100 100 dollars yeah, $1. Yeah, yeah, so he's worth like 100 billion or whatever. So J.P. Morgan's just below that. And when he died, only a few tens of millions or something went to his family despite him being a billionaire at the time. And it was discovered that he was a frontman for the Rothschilds because the Rothschilds were so hated in the US mm-hmm. that they weren't basically allowed to do direct business. So they had to use a front man. Well, the same thing's true with the black nobility. They were completely frickin hated in Europe. And in fact, there was um, I forget what it's called, but it's it's the War of the League or something or other. And basically all the different nobles of Europe, which included some offshoots of these families, but not the core ones. They descended upon Venice to destroy it utterly. And I forget what it's called. It's the War wow. of the League or something or other. Um, and the Pope intervened and said, no, 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 don't don't destroy them. And they were able to get out of it. And ever after that, I feel like they've been, you know, they've had three close brushes with getting wiped out, Carthage, Tyre, and then this, they they they've really wanted to back themselves off from being like, you know, from people knowing who they are. And so they use layers upon layers upon layers of deception. And they also like to do things like they, they apparently bankrolled and helped Martin Luther get started in order that they could create two different Christian movements within Europe that they could play off against each other. Um, They were absolutely behind the Bolshevik revolution through their agents in the city of London Mm -hmm. uh, in in the UK and also wall street like Anthony Sutton has done a lot of work proving this. So the Bolsheviks were actually funded by these huge financial centers that were told are capitalists or whatever. Of course, I don't know that we've ever had capitalism the way Adam Smith that, you know, described it, but not a a
0: free market. That's for sure.
1: Right. And so like they, they love to play both sides against the middle to use like a, a modern parlance And it seems to me that they use like a lot of people don't realize that both the USSR and the Nazis invaded Poland right around the time that Poland was having all these worker strikes and they were trying to make worker collectives. And the Nazis went in there and took Poland and then said, what was that about unionizing or whatever Right, (laughs) and beat them down? And same thing, Russia invaded from the east and it really looks like. You know, World War One helped break up a lot of the monarchies, and World War Two really broke up any vestiges of any kind of monarchies and completely reshaped Europe in a in a fundamental right. way.
0: Although it's said that the the Queen of England's family is uh, the Windsors is deeply enmeshed in all of this.
1: Yeah, they they used to be called the Sax Coburg Gotha, mm-hmm. uh, and then during World War One, they changed their name to Windsor because Sax Coburg Gotha sounded just a little bit too. German, which right? <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah, and Sax Coburg Gotha are basically some Teutonic royal families that married into these Venetian black nobility bloodlines. That's who they are. So those old Italian banking families went up there, and they saw that Germany was up and coming. It wasn't really Germany back then; it was Proto Germany. Um, yeah. Because, uh, weirdly enough, Oregon is one year older than Germany. The state I'm in is one year older than the right. country of Germany. 1860 versus 1859. So they were a bunch of like fiefdoms and duchies and baronies and and micro city states. It's very bizarre actually. Um, But they were held together by like the common language basically. And then they had the Prussian nationalist movement and so forth and became Germany in 1860. But even way back much much earlier hundreds of years before germany gets created officially the teutonic knights and the junkers which are the name of the rich people there had settled there and were basically making germany the beginnings of modern germany would arise out of that milieu and it was some of those noble families the junkers and teutonic knights that had settled there that married in with these venetian old old banking families and became saxe Coburg gotha among uh, other things and so uh Almost every, I mean, basically all European blue bloods are tied into this line in some way or another. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all super nasty and evil. I don't believe they are, Right. Um, but it's everything from the Habsburgs, which is a super fascinating bloodline, to the House of Orange is a super important bloodline for uh, these families. There's the Aldebrandinis, the Pallobincinis um orsini's that i mentioned earlier that are particularly like kind of horrifying um uh the massimo family is extremely nasty and supposedly runs all the mafias and most of the criminal mafias on earth a lot of the stuff when you start to get into this especially anything modern right it's very difficult to pin down and you have to rely a lot on deep you know unsourced deep conspiracy theory type of stuff to get any information at all that appears to be leaks from insiders and or rival families trying to make one of the families look worse than the others it's it's hard to say but um you know it it is really hard to to kind of like uh drill down on a lot of this stuff because they really just kind of go poof and almost disappear from the scene magically yeah after that league of uh You know, man, I I almost want to look it up here. I wish I'd written it down. Well, Um, one of the things
0: I, I wanted to bring up at this point in the story, maybe we could talk about things like the American Revolution and the French Revolution, because I do think that that was a period of time where the kind of feudal nobility was so in your face, and they realized that they couldn't get away with it anymore. I mean, the people were starting to to these democratic revolutions were starting to happen. There was a revolution in Greece and then the American revolution and the, and the, uh, and the French revolution. so democracy was starting to kind of take hold and, 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 but what I guess the way that I perceive it is that the democracies like political power was shifted from the feudal Lords from the feudal Mm -hmm. system into these democratic systems. But the money, it was another way to, for them to, to hide, like they can hide behind the democracies now and say, all oh, the democracies now have the political power and the nobility is just, you know, we're just old hat. We don't have any political power anymore. When in reality, uh, <laughs> they're you know, they, they have so much wealth that they, it's easy for them to to buy off these democracies or just work around them. I mean, it was uh so it was almost a way to, to, to further, um, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Their existence, as opposed to in the feudal system, when like they were prancing around, they were, they were, you know, arrogant about themselves and they realized that like, this isn't working for us anymore. Let's, in some cases, I think definitely in the case of the French revolution. And then with people like Karl Marx, as you already mentioned, they're, they're just completely funding these things to, to fund quote unquote workers, revolutions and workers rebellions. Uh, that ultimately are are, I think manufactured to steer the people in the direction that the this no, noble class uh, behind the scenes really wants people to go in anyway.
1: Yeah, real, real quick, I just want to, for, for the viewer, so it's mm. called the War of the League of Cambrai, and it happened from about 1508 to about 1516, and that is really, seems to be the moment almost when they disappear, which okay. is interesting, because right. that's right around the time that the invention of the printing press happened, right. and with the invention of the printing press, suddenly regular people were starting to read, be able to read for the first time ever, Figure and if it you out. Read, <laughs> Yeah, if you read history before the invention of the printing press, it's all like this it's all like and then the uncle killed his brother and then the brother got poisoned by the prince and then the prince's mother killed his father and married him and like it's all like game of thrones on steroids like right. insane. if you ever go to the vatican look at the pope list and you'll be like hey that's interesting you had 25 popes in a five-year period how's that <laughs> happen when there's a life's term it's because they all got freaking assassinated and yeah. so like if you read ancient history, it's very clear because it's written for the sons of nobles in order to prepare them for the dangers, risks, and opportunities of becoming a monarch, of being someone powerful, right. and they just give it to you straight. They say everything's like Byzantium. It's all Byzantine. It's all court intrigues and backstabs and assassinations and poisoning, and like everybody's fighting each other for every scrap of power they can, and and then political marriage alliances and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's crystal clear that it's a fight over territory and people over like resources and humans as human resources. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's just, it's crystal clear. And then the printing press comes along and about 75 years later, first of all, there's the papal bull, uh, which is like the initial thing on propaganda saying, gosh, it seems like the peasantry is getting a bit uppity lately. Perhaps we should start putting out lies. In written form, (laughs) right? right, And so basically the printing press was massively destabilizing. And so they didn't want people to, you know, sort of catch on to how things are. And it's after that, that suddenly, oh, yes, of course the king over the hill is evil, but the king here is a good guy and he's, he's there for you. Sure, he has to tax you, but that's because if he didn't tax you, he wouldn't be able to defend you from that evil king right over that hill. Right. So, like, if you just, you know, and I grew up reading ancient history. So when I started to read modern history, I just was always like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And my dad would always say, oh, the Enlightenment happened, blah, blah, blah. Again, after the printing press. Yeah. And then suddenly everybody became noble. And I mean, look, there were great things that happened that came out with the Renaissance Enlightenment. And and we have to be careful talking any kind of absolutes. And, like, one thing I would comment on to, to respond to you talking about the French Revolution I think the French Revolution was in part an internecine conflict between various branches of these noble families because mm-hmm. they're all kind of related. But some of the ones that are further out afield, basically, that operate outside of Italy, there are some exceptions, especially in uh, Germany, to this. But usually the families that stayed in Italy. Are the ones it seems to me that are the more powerful ones, and the ones who who like maybe weren't as powerful. They sought opportunity elsewhere in Europe and elsewhere around the world. But they're they're more like the junior varsity squad rather than the varsity squad. Right. And for example, the Queen of England. Again, this is apocryphal. Take it for what it's worth. This is rumored. Uh, I think it's maybe her butler talks about it, or maybe. Whatever, but somehow it, it's come out. It's rumored that Princess Diana would go with the Queen of England and Prince Charles, and they would go down. and I believe it's the Palavancinis. They had to go down and like kiss the ring of the Palavancinis and go, "Oh yes," and give them tribute and money. Oh, and wow. that the Queen said, "Never, ever, 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 ever talk about this. This is the most greatest secret that you'll ever be shown. Never speak of this." So again, that's one of those things where it's hard to source, and and and, and I want the viewers to take it with a grain of salt. Like I say, anything once you get beyond the league of Cambry, it just it, it's almost like it just goes dark, just like the lights get shut off. But the 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 power of these families is indisputable for yeah. for just like you know fifteen hundred straight years, and it's it's right there, it's crystal clear black nobility by the way is what they call themselves and it's a flex to say we can do whatever we want no matter how depraved and who can stop us we're the evilest meanest nastiest around so don't even think of messing with us that's a a name they chose to describe how dark they are Mm -hmm. of course there's variation in any of these groups because you know it's like it's 30 to 60,000 people what i would call the, the the black nobility you know people that are further out on the branches of the tree and the people who are more core you know but they if you get any group of 30 to 60,000 people no matter how hard you try and make them homogenous based on race or age or you know sex or whatever there's going to be variation. And so I don't want to, I think we have to be careful even when we discuss this, not to demonize these people. Are some of them behave like demons? Yes, absolutely. These are some of the nastiest, most ruthless people on earth without question. But I don't think, I, I don't think that we should act as though they're demonic. I think we need to understand who they are and what their motivations are. And I think that there there seems to be a back and forth between two kind of philosophical groups within it that have been vying with each other. And kind of there's the Great Reset group that wants total top down control, and then there's another group that believes, for its own self interested reasons, in giving people more liberty and freedom. And right now that that Molokian great reset group um they they seem to have their hands at the wheels of power a lot more but there is it seems there is a dispute between the power elite as to how to proceed and mm. that part of how we're getting a lot of the information we are that's undermining things not from great citizen journalists or podcasters such yourself but stuff that's clearly being leaked it looks to me as though there is a group that's attempting to actually overthrow and, and and take over after having scapegoated the great reset people and go, oh, but we're the good guys. And we're going to have a system that has some of those elements, but not all of them, to where they'll use a, a, a lighter leash rather than heavy shackles is right, a good right. way to put it. And, and, and so... I would prefer for that group to win, for sure. I'll just say that for starters. And secondly, I think that what would be the ideal, given our current circumstances, is for people who are in these ultra power elite circles to kind of reflect upon what their families have been doing for thousands of years and maybe go a different way, which is a big ask because the other thing to realize is these people are conditioned from birth to behave the way they are, to be utterly ruthless, to be nasty. That's how their family has maintained this much wealth and power for this many, you know, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of generations. Most people, even if someone gets really wealthy in a family, usually it's gone within a generation or two. Mm -hmm. So to be able to hold on to that level of wealth and power for that much time takes tremendous intelligence and tremendous conditioning and reinforcement and many of these people are, much like in the mafia movies, you can't leave. You can't go a different way. And if you start to go a different way and you're not doing it from a ruthless, self-interested point of view, they'll just kill you, even though you're a family member. If someone were to come out and go, by the way, my fellow Orsini's are all evil, blah, 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 and, and you know Uncle Pepe is the great pope or whatever – they would they would be killed if they did that publicly. They would, they would just immediately have an accident or heart attack or whatever. They would die. And so these people, and I'm not trying to say it's okay what they're doing. I'm just saying it's important that we not demonize these people because in my opinion, most of the great worst things that have ever happened in history have been a direct result of demonizing groups of people. And it's part of the reason that I'm against this anti-Semitic trope a, I believe it's false and inaccurate that they act more like the consiglieres for these families. They have intermarried to some degree, especially the ultra elite ones like the Rothschilds, but they operate as the consigliere, which is the the guy who who's the administrator who does and, and main advisor to the mafia don. Mm-hmm. Like if you watch the old Godfather, you have um, Marlon Brando as the don. He makes all the decisions, but he kind of has a hands off even though he makes all the decisions and it's Robert Duvall as his consigliere. He's the guy who actually gets stuff done and he's the primary advisor to the Don. But when the Don says, the Don says, what do you have to say? And then he says, well, this is what I think. The Don goes, I disagree. Do this. And the guy goes, Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And he does what he says. So you, if a, if a company is doing something evil and the CEO is doing evil things, obviously the CEO has culpability and responsibility. And we shouldn't say, oh, the Rothschilds have no responsibility or culpability here. That is false. And that is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is the shareholders of that company, to use that corporate metaphor again, are the ones who ultimately have the power. Because when the shareholders say, oh no, that's not what you're going to do, CEO, that CEO is either going to get cut loose, maybe with a golden parachute, maybe not, or he's going to do what they say. That's his choice. And so what I'm saying is, is that this is the shareholder class and not to get fixated on the CEO. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice, even with corporations, very often the shareholder class is quite obfuscated, right? Yeah. Vanguard owns BlackRock and BlackRock owns Vanguard. And who owns BlackRock? We don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We know Larry Fink is the CEO, but who owns BlackRock? We don't know. It's the Black nobility, I'll tell you right now, but we don't know because if you start to draw into it, it's a show company, instead of a show company inside of the Cayman Islands, and then that's over in Malta, and then this is actually you, you'll never find the end of it, yeah, because they've been spending the last 500 years hiding themselves
0: with mastery. Right. I mean, it is fascinating. You're not even allowed to uh, like it's illegal uh, in England to look into the finances of the queen to try to figure out how much money she has. And that always kind of cracks me up because you see these, you know, fortune 500 magazine, whatever the hundred richest people in the world. And it's like, how do you know, (laughs) you know, they're not telling you (laughs) the the real money is hidden. They're not telling you
1: (laughs) if people know who you are, it's dangerous. That's how you can know. It's not the Rothschilds. Everybody knows who the Rothschilds are. How many people know about how many people talk about the Alderbrandinis or the Assinis or the Palavansinis? That was one of the things that bothered me about it when I was, Kind of stuck in a stage of my research to where I couldn't get beyond like Rothschilds and so forth, right. but that information was always very available and always had that nasty anti-Semitic t- uh, the flavor to it. Yeah. N- not yeah. that it wasn't accurate because it was accurate, but it it always had a almost always came with like a, a nasty aftertaste. Almost I don't know how to describe sure. it. Better. And it left me unsettled and I just, I wasn't satisfied. It didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me that in 1776, um, Mayor Amschel Rothschild is just a coin dealer, sells gold coins in Germany. And then a hundred years later, they suddenly own every railroad, every railroad in Europe and dominate every fricking country in Europe in a hundred years. With what seed capital? Like how smart are these people? Do they have like a 5,000 IQ? Like, get out of here. There's no way. And so whenever you see a figure just suddenly appear on the field and they have just tremendous power and influence, like seemingly out of nowhere, well, they're getting help from somewhere. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so, they've been chosen.
1: hmm Exactly. And so I, my my personal opinion is that the Khazarian Mafia, which is a very small subset of Sabadian Frankist, uh, You know, people who were once Ashkenazis, uh, Ashkenazi Jews, but I don't, I I agree with you. I don't think you can properly call them Jews any more than, I mean, like are so is the Westboro Baptist Church, is that representative of of all Christianity? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly, yeah. It's silly. It's, it would be ludicrous to say that. Is some extremist, tiny Wahhabist sect that's uh, blowing up buildings, is that Islam? No. A lot of people want to say it is, but no. D- does that mean because this group isn't representative and they're bad? Does that mean that therefore all the Abrahamic faiths are good and it's just the little people in the margins? No, I think you can criticize all three that there's been historical things that have happened that aren't so good, you know. But I also think there's beautiful things that have come out of all three of those groups, you know. And and I just yeah. people always want to have Darth Vader come in, kick in the door,
0: <laughs> yeah, right. red
1: lightsaber. I'm the bad guy. When has that ever happened in history? And the thing is, I don't even think most of these people think they're the bad guy. Some of them, I think, do. I think some of them are well aware of who they are. But right. in history, a huge amount of people who do terrible atrocities, they actually think they're the good guy. And they've demonized this other group. And they never, nobody ever comes in and goes, hey, I'm going to be really evil and starve you and kill you and blah, blah, blah. Because what would people's response to that would be? They would immediately take up arms and resist.
0: Right yeah, like exactly
1: are, are evil people stupid? you
0: know well, and that's that's where to my point about the democracies like yes. like basically allowing or setting up these even these democratic revolutions where suddenly the yes. democracy is the front, the essentially the slave class or caste I even I start thinking more in terms of a caste system here um, mm-hmm. the the slave caste uh, believes that they're voting for their leaders. Uh, And in the meantime, the same, another kind of trip I've been on recently has been um, because people want to say, you know, this is capitalism or this is late stage capitalism or whatever. But then when you go back in history, the feudal lords were using a system called mercantilism, which actually developed the first transnational corporations. And then there were these democratic revolutions. and who were these governments doing business with the same transnational corporations so the economic system really didn't change there were these sort of political moves that happened and yes the people got to vote now for a you know for a, a bureaucratic institution that had sway over the making of some of these laws and and theoretically you know control over the militaries but uh, who's really making the money off of all of this the same the same mercantilist corporations that have evolved into the corporations of today. And who are the people behind the corporations? Just like you said, well, whoever the shareholders of, of BlackRock and Vanguard are, and we're not allowed to know who they are. So exactly, you know. exactly. And that's
1: very well said. I I, I think that, um, you know, behind most of the movements of the past, like few hundred years have certainly been, uh, it, it seems, it seems again and again, it's this, it's this black nobility group yeah. just again and again. It's these, I mean, another way you can just describe them if you want to, it's like European blue bloods, you know, like the, the, right. the royalty, the, the royal families of Europe. But I don't like that because it seems the most powerful ones are the ones who remained in Italy. And I mean, if you think about it, like Rome had a, what, 800 year run, something like that. And they accumulated incredible. Staggering yeah. amounts of wealth, and then they flipped into the Vatican and the you know Catholic Church. It took ten percent of what everyone made for twelve hundred years. Yeah, that's some deep pockets, bro. You right. know what I mean? And, well, and that's not even including. Then you add banking. You add I forget what the name of it is, but they had this uh, Venetian. Um, they had like the proto uh, East Indian uh, company. Um, Philip talks about it in the interview, or the back the conversation I had with him. Where, where he talks about, I forget what it's called, but there was like a, a proto East India company that went around the Mediterranean. And again, mm. it's owned by these same people in the East India company, same right. thing. And, and there was a Dutch precursor to the East Indian company. I forget what it's called something similar, but sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, I was just going to say uh, on top of the banking fortunes, you have uh, all the weapon sales and then all the yeah. drugs, the drugs. I mean, the illegal drug trade, yeah. internationally, I mean the you know, when I first learned about the opium wars, it was like, What? Yeah. You know, the the country of England flooded the country of China with opium. Like who was making bank off of that? You've come to find out that American families were growing opium to sell to through the British to the Chinese for the opium wars in the eighteen eighties. And you know, wealthy American families. It was Bush like, family, among others. <laughs> I mean, pretty outrageous to come to the realization and then you see things like the american military you know they're in vietnam where's the opium grown you know in the golden triangle right right next door and then they they switch over into afghanistan where's all the opium grown in afghanistan it's like starting to look like the american military is protecting the opium crop here um Mm -hmm. and that's just again trillions of dollars and that's the thing that to me is the real like uh, it, it just makes the light bulb go off that there's so much credence to thinking about history in terms of of the fact that these essentially organized crime, an organized crime family, you know, families over generations have just amassed incredible amounts of wealth. Because where do you think, I mean, empires come and go, but the families that accrued, you know, large chunks of the wealth of empire They're still around. What happened to their, you know, what happened to those Roman senator families that had just massive amounts of wealth accrued from the 800 year long Roman history of the Roman Empire? Well, they, you know, they became the feudal lords. They became the black nobility. They didn't just, you know, that money was, they didn't die. They didn't get raided by barbarians and all that was lost and spread about Europe, you know, I mean, right. Um, these empires accrue massive amounts of wealth, and that wealth gets transferred through these family lineages until I mean I don't even think these days money means anything. I mean once they once they really solidified the the fiat banking system, the fractional reserve system. I mean they just make the money. Like what's money to them that you know? It, it must it's be land just all and about people. power. Yeah, land. It's, and land, people. People. Yeah, land, and
1: it's land and people. It always has been, right. and that's never changed. And, and, and what's happened is there's been layers upon layers upon layers of obfuscation, whether it's democracy or republics or, you know, uh, corporations, banking, all this kind of stuff. It's just layers and layers and layers of complexity and obfuscation over the very simple fact that someone somewhere owns this piece of land and someone somewhere has the rights to the taxes generated from these people yeah. and, 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 and whatever other kind of wealth that can be extracted from our labor.
0: Well, uh, we probably should be thinking about wrapping it up, but I want to have one final conversation. You brought up Lyndon yeah. LaRouche, and I, um, I actually, interestingly, I just bought one of one of his books called "The Secrets Known Only to the Inner Elites." I guess it's Lyndon LaRouche Jr. who wrote this one, mm-hmm. um, and that that guy. The, there's kind of a new historian on the scene. I just got turned on to Matthew Arrett. Um, uh-huh. and I saw, seen a couple interviews with him and he mentioned LaRouche and I had always kind of avoided reading the guy because exactly what you're saying is such a controversial figure. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually starting more and more, I mean, especially with the kind of cancel culture that we've been during the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and I'm really seeing that they, they almost give this any ideas that are, um, that are starting to knock on the door of some of these ideas start to get branded with this this negative emotional energy i mean that's there's no other way to say it you know people start getting called nazis or fascists right. or white supremacists or it's the, the ideas start to get tainted even though you start reading these guys work and it's like they're they're none of those things you know they're just people that are curious about history and have turned on kind of gotten turned on to this idea that. Maybe it's not about the left-right paradigm, you know, communism and capitalism. Maybe it's about the powerful, the rich and powerful versus the rest of us. And, and it turns you on to a lot of these different ideas. Well, in mm-hmm. this book, he describes um, that these families have conflicting, that he says that one side of them are Aristotelian and the others, the others are Platonic and these two forces kind of kind of fight with each other and that the um the uh, Aristotelians have been winning I guess in the last in the last hundred years or so and that this is kind of the conflict that we can see within these upper class people uh, and it it describes it it sounds a lot like the way you describe the Malachians and the and the Luciferians in terms of these okay. two different. Um, people vying for power. But one of the things that he talks about in the book is that they they use mythology or they use like cultural zeitgeists against us. Absolutely. And, and that is uh, I think the concept, maybe we can discuss this for a while in closing, because that's that was the big light bulb for me to realize that a lot of these big cultural movements uh, that people tend to want to think are organic are actually engineered. <laughs> And they're engineered in order to get us to to be compliant, you know, to, to be compliant and to do what the authority tells us to do, uh, and and to sort of, I mean, it's it's a way of hurting us into because they can't they can't afford to just use military might to control seven billion people on the planet, right? I mean, they have right. to have other means, and they've learned over this thousands of years uh, of this lineage to utilize uh, mythological concepts to control the people and so then we basically enslave ourselves and they don't have to do all the hard work of you know keeping down the rebellions every couple of years
1: mhm i completely agree yeah i uh i i think that 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 um since world war 1 and the creation of the Tavistock Institute uh which was supposed to study in in great britain it was supposed to study the um, effects of shell shock but uh that was actually a cover for what was sort of the proto psychological warfare and now it's just an open psychological warfare organization that's just what they do yeah and uh an example of something they do uh that is one of my pet peeve things out there that uh, supposed it organically appeared after hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years of refutation, dismissal, and really we've known for about 2,000 years it's wrong, something like that, uh, is Flat Earth. Hmm. Flat Earth is a Tavistock created psyops in order to decret- discredit people like you and I, or anyone else who wants to question the dominant paradigm. Right. Uh, you know, people, so called truthers, or whatever. The thing is, when you first get uh, awoken to the way the world works, I, I guess I'm fortunate in some ways that my introduction to so called conspiracy theory was in the early days of the internet. Uh, And just after 9-11, when relatively speaking, most conspiracy theories out there were very pure, meaning that all of them were freaking real. Yeah. Whether it was chemtrails, tra- chem which is now openly acknowledged as geoengineering, the former head of the freaking CIA, um, that horrible Brenner, Brenner is it Brenner or Brennan Brennan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Brennan, who was the head of the CIA under Obama, the drone King. He came out and talked about, Oh yeah. we spray stuff in the upper atmosphere. Bill Gates come out. Oh boy. As evil Kermit the frog, we should really block out the sun. Uh, not because I have vat grown meat and, uh, control right. of the food supply you know like these guys have just come out and openly see it and people still act like it's not real and i'm like i know what do you want they literally talk about it at the u.n the head of the cia talks about it bill gates talks about he wants to do it what do you call that when you drop chemicals out the back of a freaking airplane it's chemtrails <laughs> so like yeah. that was real All the stuff about central banking was real. All the stuff about JFK was not the way it was said. You know, it was an inside job of some sort or another. That's who knows what really happened there. But definitely it wasn't Oswald by himself. Now I do know. That I'm certain of. Anything (laughs) else about Kennedy, I don't know. But like, you know, so um, central banks being super important, the Federal Reserve, the founding of the Federal Reserve being ultra sketchy on Jekyll Island. All the stuff I read in the late 90s and early 2000s, and I mean early 2000, like, because starting around 2003, I started to notice there was all kinds of junk conspiracy. Oh, there was holograms. There were no actual planes flew into the buildings. What? Like, I've met people who watched the planes fly and felt the, you know, the shockwave of the plane flying that low at sea level that fast. Like planes absolutely went in but was 9-11 a bunch of you know hijackers coordinated out of a cave by a guy on dialysis no obviously not (laughs) obviously not but it also wasn't i don't think alien technology mini nukes and holograms i mean maybe but i don't think so but those kind of theories started to have very slick packaging and coming out saying oh it's you know, it's all this kind of stuff. And it was very slick and there was clearly money behind it, which made me go, huh. And I realized what it is, is the internet kind of caught them off guard the same way the creation of the printing press.
0: That, I was going to bring that up exactly. It's like we we have this window of opportunity where the internet came out and just like right when the printing press came out, it was like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, people are getting too much, too much democratization of knowledge here. Uh, and not enough control and so they've had to spend you know the last 15 years or so really figuring out uh, how to how to get that control back and meanwhile a lot of us have learned a few things
1: yes that's right and I mean it's always this back and forth and ratcheting up of like the intelligence of those of us who are trying to resist this madness and you know, them figuring it out. The nice thing is, is we're much more nimble, you know, they're like the Titanic. They have to, which that was a conspiracy, by the way, um, <laughs> to create the Federal Reserve. Right. But, um, you know, like it, it takes forever to turn the big ship, whereas we're in little tiny, you know, skiffs or speedboats. We can just turn however we want. Yeah. And so they're, they're forever actually playing catch up with us. And that's something that gives me hope. And also the very fact that 21 years ago, you know, or 20 years ago when I would tell people 9-11 was an inside job, Everybody thought I was insane. Everybody was like, You should be locked away. You're a horrible person for even saying that. And now it's like, you know, Zoomer kids will go, uh, Jet fuel can't melt steel, steel beams. Ha ha ha. You know, they know <laughs> that joke, even though they were born way after 9 11. The younger generation, like, just totally knows 9 11 was an inside job. It's not even up for debate. It's silly to even say that it wasn't. Right. Only the most. Died in the wool blue-pill-eating people like my brothers. My brothers will never believe it because I said it too long ago, and they formed their entire <laughs> personality around, I'm not my older brother, you All know, right. my older brother's crazy, blah, blah, whatever. But aside from my two brothers, I think everybody in America, other than my brothers, knows 9-11 was an inside well, job. And that shows me that things are changing and getting better, and there is this opening, like you say.
0: Please... Well, I was just going to say, I, I think the numbers now are well over fifty percent in terms of the Kennedy assassination. Like, right. I mean, almost nobody believes that Oswald was the lone shooter anymore. It's just, I mean, that's a, that was ridiculous when they came out with it. Um, but it's it, it is fascinating to me, the power of the propaganda. And then I think since Trump and we were talking a little bit before the show yeah. about Trump as potentially being completely controlled opposition in and of himself to kind of give them the excuse to to do the censorship. But then the Q thing, which, again, just like you were saying, uh, clearly super well funded, some kind of a mm-hmm. some kind of a super well funded LARP that, you know, I, just well, you know about Operation Trust, people. right? I don't.
1: So Operation Trust was a uh, was a uh, Stalinist or whether what, what those a Bolshevik thing that they did. Not too terribly long after the Bolshevik Revolution, there started to be rumors about how there was Russian generals who were Czarist loyalists that were going to strike back at the Bolsheviks, and that people just needed to you know get ready and they could support these generals when these generals came out of hiding these white hat generals they didn't call them white hats but you know right, uh yeah. the these generals who were um secretly going to overthrow the bolsheviks and what they did was they traced they would put out certain information in different areas and then by the way rumors were spreading they could trace where the information went through and they could then find the people and then they grabbed all the people sure we're doing it. And it also kept people from doing any actual organization because they thought there was an organized resistance to the czar or to the uh, Bolsheviks that they totally. could join. Yeah. And and what I see it is, it's been a huge paralyzation. I don't know how many people were saying, oh, don't worry any minute now. And I will tell you, I had a flicker of hope myself that maybe it was true just because I was so horrified of I'm just going to say it an obvious pedophile Right. Not even like they all are and they all go to Epstein's Island and blah, blah, blah. But like a guy who literally sniffs little girls on live national television. Right. And nobody seems to have a problem with this, that he was going to get in. I knew he was going to push the vaccines. I knew that as bad as you know, and I actually think Trump, not so bad. I think he's the best 21st century president, whether he was controlled opposition or not. He just sure. did less harm. Yeah, exactly. Less harm I mean, he Bush and Obama and and Biden. Jesus so right. yeah but yeah, the, so the, yeah
0: the trump phenomenon just boggles my mind and this is where the, i mean i don't think he was aware that he was being used as controlled opposition but they were able to play him uh to the point where i mean they <laughs> they censored the president of the united states off twitter and nobody thought that was crazy like i you know and then the trump i i just i think you probably heard the term but trump derangement syndrome It was really effective. I mean, half the country thought the other half of the country were these white supremacist fascists when it was just like, that's not real. That's not actually happening. I mean, they're Republicans. They've always been Republicans. They haven't changed. Like, they didn't suddenly (coughs) transform into uh you know these raving white supremacist Nazi lunatics and yet uh half the country really believed it and it was just so insane and then those people who believed it were totally down with the with censoring you know we gotta censor those evil white supremacist fascists know. we've gotta I mean then when the COVID lockdowns came oh you know <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe nobody lifted a finger when things like freedom of religion, you know, the the separation of church and state, they were closing down churches. People couldn't go to church on Sundays. It was like, I couldn't believe that people weren't rising up against it. And it just goes to show you the power of the mainstream media and this and that kind of. Just to tie it back around to this idea of controlling the the mythology, like they have mm-hmm. such a, de- a depth of understanding of how, how psychology works. And I think 500 years ago, I mean, I've interviewed guys like Joe Atwell, who posit that, that uh, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, the Romans came up with Christianity as a way of of, uh, of, of curtailing the messianic, uh, Jewish revolutionaries that were really a, a pain in their butt. And, you know, by saying, no, no, the Ma- Messiah has already come. And he says, turn the other cheek, you know, it was something that really played into the hands of the Romans. And it was something that, that was basically a psychological operation, um, on their part, 2000 years ago, and you fast forward to the 20th century and things like the Tavistock Institute, and these guys are using like cutting edge, scientifically, you know, analyzed the uh, psychological warfare against the population. And it's just outrageous how effective it is. And I think that's what we're coming up again. I mean, that's what I, you know, that's what I'm trying to figure out. How do you defeat that? <laughs> because it is well- powerful. I, I really, really feel like um,
1: we, we have actually already reached a turning point, and now it's about that it's building momentum. And that is, I really, really, really think that we're reaching a critical mass, uh, which is you know still a minority, but a critical mass of people who are like, no, you're not going to dupe, dupe me anymore. I do see people backslide a little bit here and there. Like there were some people who had figured out the COVID op, and they turned around. And we're like, oh, but Ukraine, this is different somehow. And I'm just oh, like, I know.
0: It, what? That's almost the strangest thing is when they can yeah. wake up to one thing, and then, but then the propaganda shifts, it's be, and it's, it's the, the next it's thing. The
1: partisan, it's the part. It really is that left-right paradigm. It's yeah. that partisan framework. It's just like you know, like I have family members. unfortunately, the vast majority of my family is very much in the blue church you know biden oh sure he's got some things but thank god we got rid of the orange nazi we were this close you know that those old ladies taking selfies in the rotundas yeah just a matter of time before they went from selfies in the rotunda on jam six to <laughs> i freaking total mass genocide like you could see with their knitting needles that they were getting ready to crochet nooses for all of us well you know like <laughs> well Christ. the january like, have you seen another any classic actual video
0: of it what was that well, the January 6th thing is a, is a classic example, totally. where it was like, for whatever reason, there was almost no security at the Capitol that day. Then the cops open up the gates and wave people through. And then all of a sudden, the net, you know, and then a few thousand people walk through the rotunda, just like on every, any day when, pe- you know, people go through there and they check it out. And then they leave with, with almost, I mean, some vandalism occurred and the, and Ashley Babbitt was killed, unfortunately. I mean, there was there was some instances of violence, unfortunately, but the vast majority and and clearly no indication that any anything was planned in advance. And there was certainly no indication that there's any kind of insurrection. But so I had, I had kind of looked into it the day of, I heard something had happened. I'm seeing some videos videos and seeing kind of what happened. And then the next day I turn on NPR and it was like insurrection at the Capitol. And I was like, where? And that's how, you know, like, Oh, it's a Mm -hmm. psyop because they just push it over the mainstream media. Just relentlessly. Yeah. Relentlessly. And, and they don't allow anybody else, any alternative perspectives to really have a voice And you can just tell like, okay, they hate this messaging over and over and over again. And it just gets, and again, and that left, right paradigm, like you said, that partisanship, man, people love to hate the other side, you know? And so, so when the propaganda shifts to their side, they're like, yeah, you know, we hate you guys.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And people want revenge because they've been mistreated by the other side, the other side, when the other side was in power. It's like, no, it was just the other hand of the puppet master, yeah, of course. Yeah. But I'm glad that we agree that it was way worse than 9/11 times Pearl Harbor times the right. Roman Roman genocide and the Iberian Peninsula. I almost said something that would be horribly inappropriate, <laughs> right. but like, you know, it, it, I just the hyperbole is like how can any sane, rational, grounded person here worse than 9-11 right because one person dying which would be like the equivalent on 9-11 of one terrorist dying yeah and then the rest of the terrorists milling in the gift shop in the world trade center you know floor a yeah. <laughs> gift shop <laughs> like that's clearly the same as you know 3,000 people dying or whatever like how can you possibly even like I don't understand how people can't just hear these claims and on the face of it go, well, that's absurd. And it's so absurd and so over the top that clearly they're trying to elicit a reaction to me. But yeah, what it yeah. seems is it's that KGB thing where they said if you bombard someone for like exactly. I think two months straight with fear messaging, yeah. you can say the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. And they'll say the sun rises in the west and sets in yeah. the
0: east. Well, and nothing was more clear about that one than COVID. I mean, it was just unbelievable. All all the fear messaging for the first couple of months in COVID, when when any logical leader in that situation would be trying to calm people down. Like, we don't know how deadly a new disease may be. Everybody be cool. And instead it was exactly the opposite, where it's just, you're constantly getting hammered with this fear messaging. And then, um, in Britain, I can't remember the name of the team, but they had a team of psychologists working on that messaging that actually six months ago came out with an apology and said it was unethical of us to use fear like that. <laughs> you know? And same thing in Canada. They admitted it in both countries because,
1: funny thing, both those countries pretty heavily disarmed, especially the UK. So they can just go, yeah, yeah, lied. And what are you going to do about it? Well, and the answer is, is nothing. I tell you what, of all the amendments, the one I support the most nowadays is the Second Amendment, because I tell you, I swear to you, if it wasn't for the Second Amendment, it would be so much worse globally than it is right now. And the yeah. reason that it's not worse is because of it. And you can tell because look at the United States versus the other English speaking majority countries versus the UK versus Canada versus New Zealand versus Australia. Yeah. All of those countries unbelievable what yeah, happened they got there got continues to happen there. So what? what's the difference? Are we more noble? Is Biden more reasonable than Boris Johnson? No, clearly not. They're yeah. more psychotic in our country, if anything. So what's the difference? Well, this country is bursting at the seams with weapons, and I'm super anti-violence. But I tell you what, we saw that a superpower can be defeated in Afghanistan twice in the past 50 years. We've seen that happen where people had ak-47s and world war one era rifles and they freaking slowly but surely fought off a superpower how because if you have a pistol or shotgun which by the way kills 98 percent of all murders are pistol or shotgun when was the last time someone said ban pistols never you know nobody says that it's always rifles it's always rifles 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 the reason is is because you can be, if you're an Afghani Taliban guy, you can shoot an American a couple times and then you run away before yeah. they can call in the airstrike or whatever. And you just keep doing that for 20 years and you slowly grind down the country. Yeah, we left Afghanistan for other reasons, but the Afghanis did, with our backing, break the back of the Soviet empire. So you can absolutely with rifles do a guerrilla insurgency, and Mao understood that, Stalin understood that, and Hitler understood that, and that's why they all took rifles. They didn't. Hitler didn't think, oh no, the five percent of the German population that's Jewish or whatever is going to beat my Panzer divisions and Luftwaffe in open field combat. Right. Oh, how can we ever defeat this tiny ragtag? But he didn't think that at all. But he worried about getting shot from a building half a mile away from some marksman Jewish guy who had had enough of him. Yeah. So, yeah. That's what they're worried about. It's an elite security concern. And why does it matter globally? Because they know that if ever they do the Joe Biden, when we got F-15s and nukes, that first of all, basically the entire population would turn against them like that. The military would split. And there's a chance, a chance, I think a good chance that the military could come back on the side of the citizens. And what we do, we would go and free everyone else once we had reasserted control. And the reason I'm so confident of that is because if there was even a 60% chance that they could succeed, succeed taking everyone's guns and just loading people in the camps or whatever, they would have already done it. But they yeah. must war, have war game this a million times. And every time the computer says, you lose, you lose, <laughs> you lose, you lose. <laughs> and they're like, shit. That's why they're so desperate to take people's guns. And I hope it never comes to it. But boy, they sure are backing the population into a corner trying Man. to starve us now.
0: It was amazing to see what happened to Australia. I mean, it was yes. just absolutely. I was we're like, fine. "What?" I mean, they they put those people under lockdown for what a year and a half? Like the in, like intense lockdowns where people were, you know. I, I mean, it was outrageous to see, uh, mm-hmm. and it clearly, I think. I mean, I. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you in terms of I. I am not a violent person. I've never been a gun person. I do tight either. Theater. That's my self defense, you know, and uh, it's it's just not a thing for me. But I got to tell you, it's 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 very clear that uh, without without the number of guns that that are out there in the United States today. Uh, we would have been looking a lot like Australia or Canada or New Zealand uh, for the for the last two years. And I um, think it
1: would have been worse in all of those countries and here. Yeah. I think they would have already done endgame stuff because it's it's pretty crystal clear to me that a big part of what's occurring right now, and there seems to be some consensus among the elites. What I see is that I see that the Malachians have basically put out this, I mean, I don't know if we can say it, put out the thing that's going to lead to a lot of deaths and sterilizations and already has.
0: Yeah. Right. It's
1: sudden adult death syndrome. It must be how hot it is. Cause nobody lived near the equator. There's no cattle near the equator. They just all died at once. Blah, yeah. Blah. Right. So the combination of that thing and then the starvation, like it behooves all elites basically, if there was a lot less regular people Yeah. and yeah. what I think might be happening, this is my hope. And this is a grim hope like it's a silver lighting to a pitch black cloud and that is that i think that one group is about to try and scapegoat the other group for this devastation that's underway and that they're laying the groundwork for that Uh and that that's going to be their internal coup against that other group and it's the more luciferian promethean side that believes in in, in more liberty, like we were talking about beforehand, why I prefer a nationalist to a globalist. I don't like nationalism, right? Because It's centralized. But if, an, an, if you look at a nationalist, they will always take care of their people, because that's the basis of their power. Not because Oh, I love all you people, let me kiss your baby. Oh, I'm such a wonderful, selfless human being no, no, they're Machiavellian, just like all the rest, but they recognize that their power comes from the people. And they also usually want to maintain a certain level of buy-in from the people that's only possible by actually taking care of the people to a reasonable degree. The globalists don't have that restraint at all. They're just like, we'll wipe out all the people in that country. Who cares? Move on to the next, the next, the next, the next, same thing with resources, the same thing with uh, polluting the environment and, you know, rare earth mining or whatever it might be. And and so a nationalist actually cares more about the people. And it seems to me that this Luciferian group within the black nobility wants to have higher technology and a lot of other things. And they want to have a lot of controls in place because the higher technology that's currently hidden is so powerful and disruptive that they want to have total ironclad control before they release it. But they want to use a much lighter touch because they've learned over time that more innovation happens that ends up helping them when there's more liberty and that was what the united states experiment was it was this luciferian branch Mm -hmm. of the nobility wanted to create this more free market more innovative uh country basically as opposed to a more controlled country and it was an incredible experiment the counter argument to the US, which is very scary, but I think it's very brittle as the CCP and what you see in China, a very technological technocratic top down total control grid that's much more Malachian and oppressive. Yeah. But I really think that the more liberty oriented thing is just actually better for the elites. It's just that it depends on the psychology of the elites. Are they willing to allow a little bit more risk of losing control and being outed and you know being killed or whatever in order to reap more rewards over the medium and long term? Or do they just want to absolutely ensure that they have total domination and control? And that total domination and control is the, is the great reset people. I, I'm of the personal belief for spiritual reasons and for others that Davos will fail they will fail. I really, really believe that. Yeah. I mean, I guess if I couldn't, I don't know how I would be able to function in this world knowing what I know. But I really authentically believe that from a spiritual point of view, and even from a kind of logical point of view, what they're trying to create is so monstrous and brittle and almost cartoonish. I mean, Klaus Schwab? Yeah, yeah, for you sure. Will, you will eat the bugs. Like... <laughs> nobody thinks that that's just a little weird that they roll out some octogenarian Nazi guy who just like always missing as a monocle in the
0: armband. Well, and even this you know? full, full press, full court press towards transhumanism and, and AI total control. Like, do you really think we're all just going to, you know, wait for the metaverse glasses and then sit in a corner and, and get, get, get the, uh, get the chip in our head and wear the glasses all day. And, Eat yeah. bugs like you're saying. Like nobody wants to live like that. <laughs> I mean, it's that's right. Insane. Feed yeah, the AI.
1: Once you once you see it and once people become aware of it and they're increasingly open with it, the more people are gonna reject it. And the other thing is is that I don't think people are gonna be able to ignore when there's not enough food and also the more people who are harmed by side effects. I'm trying to be careful not to trigger the algorithm here, you know, and and that's becoming increasingly obvious, increasingly hard to hide. And what my experience is, is that as people move over to, you know, you want to call it red pilled, not in terms of in, in the matrix sense, not in terms of Republican, although let's face it, the Republicans are at least paying lip service to the bill of rights. Right. I struggle with it as someone who is from a Democratic family, blah, blah, whatever. I'm going to be voting Republican for governor and some other things for the first time in my life because (laughs) the Democrats are so insane. But being awakened to how the world works, it seems to be a semi permeable membrane that goes in one direction. Once people really wake up to the full extent of things, they either instantly collapse back into and double down and triple down on blue pill and oh, no, daddy government tell me what to do. That does happen sometimes, but the vast majority of people, just they can't go back. Once they yeah. see it, they can't unsee it. Yeah, And so we're gaining in numbers every day. And also, a lot of the most ardent supporters of our fellow regular people, they're dying, literally. And they're going to continue to die in ever-increasing numbers. and. Their brains are also going to have. I've, you know, I have a physician friend. There's going to be more and more neurological issues. Mm-hmm. They're just not going to be as effective. And so the people who are the most critical thinking, the most uh, a kind of iconoclastic. That's what I consider myself. People who just push against the dominant paradigm. Sure. And people who are suspicion suspicious of authority in general. We're a weird hodgepodge of people. I used to think we were all awesome, and then I met quite a few extreme <laughs> jerks who happened to be against the medical intervention thing,
0: you know, no, go ahead. You know, I'm just going to say really quickly and we should wrap it up. It's been going for a while and and we are kind of, but I wanted to say that it almost seems like um, certainly amongst the quote unquote conspiracy theory crowd and really almost across the spectrum is that people are individuating like people are so, there are so many different perspectives now about so many different things that no two people think alike. And, you know, I'm almost seeing it on social media where people want to argue with each other still all the time, but at some point, can we just go like, you're a different person than I am and that's fine, you know, right? Instead right. of having to take these sides. Um, And I, I kind of think that's important. That's an important <laughs> spiritual place to get to. I mean, I, I you know, my experience with like Tai Chi and other spirit paths or like a spirit path as a self-cultivation, you know, my indigenous friends, they don't care about what somebody else thinks. Like that's your universe. You know, I'm in my universe. Like, why do I, why do I need to like argue with you about your perspective on anything really like the, the whole thing. And, and I'm seeing this almost complete breakdown of, uh, of this concept of like this taking sides of this dialectic way of looking at the world. And people are just having to individuate and have respect for like, Oh yeah, you're different from me. Everybody's different from each other. That's okay. We can live, we can live in a world like that and everything will be all right. You know,
1: I think it's better. Yeah. Diversity of opinion, diversity of perspective.
0: Yeah. I always
1: tell people don't believe anything I say, like look into yourself. I'm just trying to, give people information that maybe will spark an insight or they'll be able to go research whatever, you know, and find, hopefully find some more clarity in life and and what's going on in the world. And, and I I really agree with you. I think we need to um, allow for, for, for differences. I mean, that, that that, the Milwaukee inside doesn't want differences. They want homogenization, right? They want to stifle creativity. They want to stifle the human spirit. It's like those nightmare drones in whatever city in China you must suppress your spirit's longing for freedom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: <What>? yeah. <laughs> Well, isn't God, it, that's dark. <laughs> isn't it the perfect slave system to convince people that you know you've got to take a side, and and everybody on your side thinks the same, and and then you have to fight the other side. You know, it's like, yeah. what? and and that's. I mean, people are so used to that, and I think there is a, a certain part of our brains that it, that that is attracted to that kind of tribalism, tribalism. and so yeah. it's easy. For the upper classes to exploit this in us and get us to be constantly fighting with each other. And if we actually get to a place where we're just comfortable with our own point of view, and comfortable with the fact that our next door neighbor can think differently than than I do, you know, and that's fine, we don't have to fight with each other, because I'm living my life, and they're living their lives. And, you know, we don't sounds like paradise. Yeah, hey. we don't have to argue about the fact that you know somebody believes in flat Earth or whatever or germ theory or whatever it is. You know, oh it's yeah, like, that's true. That one does get on my nerves.
1: I'm not going to lie, the flat Earth thing.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, no, no, I but I also there.
1: I also agree with you. Like, I I can't. I don't want to like talk about it, but like, I, I, uh, you know, I, I would rather like have someone who believes in flat earth and is against tyranny. Like I'm w- totally willing to work that's with just,
0: you. Exactly. That's, just please that's... don't
1: talk to me anymore about flat earth <laughs> or show me <laughs> any more videos or whatever. Like, just please do not. Yeah. Or else I'm yeah. going to send you stuff that mocks that because I've just had it.
0: <laughs> yeah. But exactly.
1: yes, I agree with, I agree with you. We have to allow people to have differences of opinion and exercise free will. It's, yeah, so important.
0: Mm-hmm. And and if we can all just agree to decentralize these power structures, like we were I, we, yeah. to go full circle. We were talking about this before the show, but uh, yeah. just if everybody can, you know, individuate respect the fact that we're all different people and none of us have to, you know, worship or participate in these, in these centralized political and economic structures mm-hmm. uh, that we're all sort of being forced to participate in right now. Uh, mm-hmm. If we just agree to work together to dismantle this uh, and then utilize our, our communities, the people that we actually know, you know, and build Absolutely. community in our in our actual communities instead of these fabricated concepts of nation states and, and you know, religions and political parties You're
1: here, <laughs> here, then, yes. uh,
0: then maybe, you know, maybe we could build a, a, a pretty decent life. I think people would be surprised at how much better it would be, how much faster. I think, it would I think be, we will. Better.
1: Yeah. I, I really believe that things. I believe that you know, eight years from now, things are going to be starting to really look up. Well, cool. Next two years, next three years, right? Very, very, very tough. And I would say, if you haven't already, just prepare for shortages of food and medicine and things like that, and start developing those communities and localized structures. Because one of the nice things is, as these people try and do the great reset, they're doing the heavy lifting of uh, blowing up this control system they've had in place and developed over the course of the past say thousand years right in order to replace it with something much worse but it creates an opportunity yeah for us it does put something else in there but what we really need is to start having you know you touched upon it their their primary method whether you want to call it magic or whether you want to call it psychology it is in either way it operates on the mind and That comes from stories, from narratives, from mythology. Yeah, And so we need to start speaking into existence a new story about how we're going to allow our neighbors to be however they want. But we're also going to come together for common defense. We're going to come together to trade. We're going to come together to help each other with the children and and raising them and educating them. We're going to come together to share our skills and our artistic output and all the rest of what makes us truly human. But we're going to do that on a voluntary basis, and that's what we're moving towards. And it's not a utopia; it's just what we all want to live right. our
0: lives. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it it's really simple, actually. You know, so well sounds good, Ian. Uh, I think we're probably going to need to wrap it up with that with that sounds positive good. note. Yeah, yeah, um, I love it. Do you want to let people know where they can? you know, hook up with, uh, maybe get an astrological reading from you or, or
1: yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I do believe in a, a dynamic between free will and karma, uh, meaning that certain things are feted and destined to occur, but there is also always a free will element. And while, The particular time of uh, astrology, I do Vedic astrology. I also do Western astrology if people are interested in that. But Vedic astrology, which is kind of my passion, it shows certain karmas that are going to ripen over the course of your life. And it can really help give you guidance in these difficult times. It, It truly can. I mean, people always rave about how clarifying it is. And I can teach you how to take weak points. In your chart and turn them into strengths, actually. I have figured out a way to sort of hack your chart, so to speak. And so that's www.whitelotusoflight, all, all one word, whitelotusoflight.com. And you can find my YouTube channel by the same name, White Lotus of Light. And um, on my YouTube channel, I talk about all kinds of Uh, crazy things, uh, alternative history, like we're talking about here today, but also I spend a lot of time on various esoteric and metaphysical subjects, Mm -hmm. interview Templar grandmasters. I interviewed, uh, Laura Eisenhower, the great granddaughter of Dwight D Eisenhower. She's into some really (laughs) out there stuff about aliens. I will tell you that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, she's great though. I love Laura. She's has a beautiful, beautiful heart. Wonderful woman. I'm going to be, um, interviewing Walter Bosley soon. Who's a, a published author who talks about, um, this whole phenomenon of, uh, you know, some people believe that there's very advanced technology that's currently hidden from us, you know, um, things that people might call UFOs, uh, you know, that actually that, uh, humans are, are, are what people are seeing and it's just advanced aerospace stuff is what people are seeing most of the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, I interview people, on my channel, all kinds of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, check that out. Right. And if you would like to learn about, um, Uh, your astrological chart. There's also the first half of your life is your natal chart. That's the first 40 years of your life. And then Vedic astrology has something called a Navamsa, which is your life post 40, which can be very different. JK Rowling, for example, super dirt poor, 38, 39, getting food outside of Sainsbury's dumpsters in England. By 41, she was well on her way to becoming a billionaire like she is now. She's given away most of her wealth, but she had huge amounts of fame and wealth yogas that triggered after she turned 40. Hmm. Same thing with George W. Bush. Interestingly enough, he had a very weak natal chart. And then post 40, he became Arbusto oil, He owned the Texas Rangers. Then he became governor of Texas. Then he became president of the United States by the time he was my age, I guess I'm behind the curve. <laughs> to that, that. Maybe if I had been born into a drug running family, I would have been doing
0: better. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on today. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a blast. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just let people know that they've been listening to The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. You can find all of my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, you can like Doug McKenty on Facebook. I'm at D McKenty on Twitter. Um, and I have been writing uh, a substack at uh, thepopulouspapers.com on substack. So you can check it out there. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And thank you so much, Ian, for coming on. This idea of the Black nobility is something I've wanted to get into for a long time. So thanks for coming on and, and helping me and helping my audience understand this a little bit better.
1: Thank you, Doug. It's been a pleasure.
0: Yeah, you bet. Have a good one. All right. All right, there you go. Uh, My interview with uh, astrologer Ian Ferguson. Um, I got intrigued with his work. I saw him post on my Facebook page uh, this interview that he had done about the black nobility, and it was a subject that I've been interested in for quite some time and never really took a deep dive into, so I was excited to get a chance to talk to him and learn a little bit more uh, about it. Um, It's just astounding to me. Uh, I guess, first of all, I think it makes a lot of sense that uh, knowledge is passed down in this kind of lineage fashion if you think about yoga or you think about tai chi um, or even native american systems they're passed down from teacher to student over generations and the thought that there is a, a lineage uh, of these empire builders uh, with this sort of darker esoteric wisdom uh, that's out there that's operating behind the scenes does make sense to me it's uh, it's so hard to imagine um because so few of us are exposed to that, and our uh, our education system teaches us a sense of history essentially based on dialectical thinking and Marxism and Hegelianism. Uh, so the idea that there are these lineages working behind the scenes uh, that are that can really have this kind of control over what's happening uh, culturally, economically, politically all across the world uh, is difficult to fathom. Um, but it does appear, I think, that there can be a cohesive lineage that has been driving essentially cultural imperialism for really for the last 3,000 years. It did start in the Middle East. We saw it uh, in Persia and Iran with Zoroastrianism and this Baal and Moloch worship in the Middle East, and then they moved to Tyre, as, as Ian was saying, uh, to Carthage, into Rome, uh, and then into Europe, and Europe then spread. Colonized essentially the rest of the world where the sun never set on the British Empire. So, uh, the notion that they had come up with these concepts of how to be empire builders way back when they were worshiping Moloch uh, and they maintained this lineage and these family lineages over centuries, it makes a lot of sense. And this is the part of the quote unquote conspiracy theory that a lot of people just can't fathom there could be an organization that uh, has survived for thousands of years that teaches this kinds of knowledge um, and they want to perceive history from the point of view of what they were taught in school Um, and that history is a political history where people vote or kings rule and then they get taken over by other kings and things kind of move on according to this natural progression so um, the concept that there is a lineage that's been driving this thing uh, for so for thousands of years that's been maintained uh, is, is difficult to grasp. But again, it just makes a lot of sense to me um, because uh, I think that these concepts like usury, like the central banking system, the system that we have today with the uh, International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, which uh, almost every country in the world now has a central bank. They're all connected to the IMF. Uh, how did this develop? And then you go into the history of it, uh, and the whole history of, of um, the, the debt-based financial system, its uh, I, I always, as you all probably know, think about it as a protection racket, like an organized crime family. And that's what I think we have here, is this organized crime syndicate potentially organized around this Moloch worship uh, thousands of years ago, and these families have simply continued to evolve and continue to do their thing. Uh, and they were the ones that initially created this concept of setting up this protection racket and engaging in, in a monopolization of resources, monopolize the currency and then issue, uh, issue debt and get paid interest, right? And then engage in uh, weapon sales and fomenting wars. Uh, and then over the centuries, gaining more and more control. And we've always heard... Uh, that these guys, I mean, these megalomaniacs that want to build empire, they want to control the world. And that's uh, that's what we're seeing now, right? We're seeing a world that's all been divided up into these nation-states, essentially based on the, the Roman model of, of um, imperialism and how they would cut up the empire so that they could administer it. And they had different um, different areas that were under different controls of different generals. Now we have those same boundary lines, and they're called nation-states. Um, and so why wouldn't the lineage have progressed from Rome until the present day, including the war profiteering, including the central banking scam? Um, so it's uh it's fascinating to really think about, and there's a lot in the historical record that shows that there were, in fact, you know these groups of people, and they do seem to be connected over long periods of time. so uh fascinating to note how Ian described that there about what fifteen hundred or so uh, the Venetian nobility really went underground, and even though you can still see <clears throat> how they potentially intermarried and then became the multiple different houses uh, around Europe, the, the noble houses that became the feudal kings of the, of different areas, France, Germany, and the English royal family that apparently is still engaged in all of this, uh, the Venetian nobility really went underground. So you don't hear it in the history books. Um, but maybe that was just the point when they got, they took control of European academia, you know, got, took control of the printing press, um, and uh, so you don't hear about it unless you get outside of that system and you look for it in different places. And enough uh, independent historians have been looking into this and there does seem to be uh, a lot of evidence that points in this direction. So I thought that it was uh, it, it was important to have this conversation with Ian and just to enlighten the audience about uh, this possibility that there has been this lineage and this lineage is primarily responsible for the world that we have today. Um, so I want to thank everybody for checking this out. I hope you find this concept as interesting as I do. I do think that um, it supplies a theory that is very cohesive and makes a lot of sense. Um, so it was very interesting to have this in-depth conversation and get a lot of these details out of Ian. Uh, so I'll just let you guys know, if you want to find out more about his work, you can go to excuse me, whitelotusoflight.com. No T-H-E at the beginning, all one word. Whitelotusoflight.com. And uh, if you want to find out more about The Shift, you can check me out at www.theshiftnow.com. Got a lot going on right now. I have just gotten a job with Foster Gamble, who I interviewed. I think he was episode 64 uh, at Thrive, ThriveOn.com, the producers of the Thrive documentary, Thrive One and Thrive Two. Uh, So that's been keeping me busy. Fortunately, uh, it's uh, also keeping me financed. So I'll be able to continue to do this work. Um, For the time being, I'm dedicated to kicking that job off and streamlining all of that work. And then I'll find more time to make more shift episodes. But uh, So in the meantime, everybody's going to have to be patient. But I'll start producing more of my own stuff uh, here in the next six weeks or so. So... um, Thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, I'll let you all know when I kick it back in again. It should be too long. Okay, take care.